Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, a new poll out in the governor's race. A governor's race, the mayor's race, excuse me. Uh, Paul Ballas, Brandon Johnson. Uh, remember the split in the primary, February 28th, was 34-20, basically. The split now, at least according to one polling outfit, plus or minus 4%, ABC7 reporting, 43-33, 44-33, you could call yeah. it. So 10, 11-point lead for Paul Ballas. Uh, feel good? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636DA, turnkey.pro, text. And I'll, I'll ask what I asked you today. You think uh, Valis has this thing in the bag? Uh, I don't think so because there's still 24% undecided. And I think tonight is going to be a big test for both candidates. And I can't wait. Because, it starts at 6 o'clock on NBC5. Because tonight is a debate. Right. The first mayoral debate, debate, or debate, debate is at 6 o'clock. To 6.30, we're like, there's going to be one moderator, so that's good. It's just going to be Marianne Ahern. So, you know, she's a serious person, I believe, and she's a serious political reporter, and she's going to ask questions that we want answered. Yeah, I doubt that. She'll ask a lot of the same questions you heard in the primary, and you'll get a lot of the same answers you heard in the primary. But hopefully, well, now that it's narrowed down to two, you'll see some back and forth between the two, and she'll let that go, because that's really what you want to see. That's really where the candidates will prove their mettle, uh, is being able to go back and forth. I mean, not you screaming over each other, no. but back and forth like you would in any sort of discussion, point, counterpoint. That's what we want to see. Mary Ann Ahern should look for opportunities to uh, prompt that and then step back and let the two gentlemen hash it out. And I think she will. I really do. But do you think there's going to be personal attacks? I mean, think about Brandon Johnson's victory speech where he called him a January 6th insurrectionist and said that if I had a puppy, Paul Vallis would, you know, say that I killed my puppy. He was so, it was so unflattering, I thought, and just not necessary. I mean, there's a time, I guess, for that, but that was not the time. When is the time for that? I don't know. I mean, actually, there should be no time for that because it was all lies. Right-wing extremists. Paul Vallis is not a right-wing extremist. Am I? Are you? I'm not. Well, that's what Paul Vallis said about people who like Ron DeSantis. He called Ron DeSantis a right-wing extremist. So that means right. if we like Ron DeSantis, we're all right-wing extremists. Is, is that I'm not what it means? You. Is that not what it means? What does it mean to you? That he was, See, um, you know, you know the, the whole it, – it, it's not particularly compelling to decry personal attacks, whatever those constitute anymore in politics. It's just a phrase that people use. It doesn't mean anything personal attack. What's a personal attack? You disagree with me? That's a personal attack to many people. 
you have exposed what my view is or you've exposed what my record is. Oh, it's a personal attack. Uh, describing you with a label that's consistent with or inconsistent with your record or your policy views. Is that a personal attack? I don't know. I don't much care. It's so banal. Um, but I will tell you this, and this, you know, for the Paul Vallis, why did Dan Prof, why, why is she so negative on Paul Vallis? I'm not negative on Paul Vallis. Here's the thing that's different about me, I guess, maybe from many um, per my time in Illinois politics, which, uh, you know, 25 plus years, uh, is um, I can understand when the choice comes down to a binary and you want to make the best choice depending on what it is you're trying to achieve. What I can't understand is imposing no price, no cost for mockery. And when Paul Vallis mocks your support, you should impose a cost. You should call it out for what it is, and you should impose a cost. Because if he is comfortable mocking your support in a political context, don't think he won't be comfortable doing so in a policy context. Does that mean that uh, there's no difference between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson? Obviously not. No, it doesn't mean that. But I like to impose costs on politicians who uh, knife people in the back. And we don't do that in Chicago and we don't do that in Illinois, which is why we have the worst governed city in the country and the worst governed state in American history. So you can heap the scorn and offer your knee jerk defenses of Paul Vallis vis-a-vis Brandon Johnson, that's fine. I get the choice between Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis. I think I've made that very clear. But the failure to impose a cost on Vallis to let him know that you cannot be taken for granted, the center-right voter in Chicago, is a mistake. And it's a mistake uh, that might actually end up costing him the election. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey Depp Pro answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Yeah, I was personally upset by what he said, but I forgave him, and I know why he's doing it. Which doesn't make it right, Dan, but I'm not voting for Brandon Johnson. He is so radicalized. He's a Marxist, and, you know, you get to leave. Like, we live here. We I, I have to stay spare here. Me, spare me that you get to leave business, honestly. Well, like you some, do. Like some, uh, uh, <laughs> and yeah. I'm going to leave, too, eventually. Yeah, um, but I'm right. just saying, I for so, the time so, being, don't say scare the, me the mic. That's just how I feel. Well, well, you can feel however you want to feel, and I will react however I want to react, which is spare me because this, like, you get to leave business is the, uh, rep- is the, the safe space for the person that doesn't want to confront the substance of the issue. Like if after, you know, only spending 50 years in Illinois and 20 in the city, you don't have standing anymore because, oh, right. Like the people that are, uh, that, well, that's the implication. The the people that are, uh, uh, snowbirds who still have a home in Chicago, but are Florida residents or Arizona residents. So they don't have standing anymore. Like if you, if you've been pushed out by these jackals, that you don't care about the city or you don't care about the state or you have no standing to comment on it. John Cass is in Northwest Indiana. He doesn't have any standing to comment on Chicago. He doesn't have any standing to comment on Vallis. Really? Is that your position? Of course it's not. It's a ridiculous position. And it's so tiresome for people to be so uh, so lazy, so lazy intellectually. To make that argument as a 
pathetic and transparent cover for not willing uh, a lack of willingness to address the substance of the matter here with respect to these two candidates as well as the future of Chicago. Well, I'm worried about what he stands for. Brandon Johnson tweeted out yesterday, let's build more affordable housing, expand public housing, create pathways to home ownership and hashtag bring Chicago home. And let's have Chicago be the first city in the U.S. to guarantee housing as a human right. More free stuff. Well, I, I, but, but, well, well I'm, didn't, does Paul Vallis want to put uh, migrants in, in public housing in the city? Isn't that what he said during the primary? Is that free stuff? Did he say that in the primary or not? I can't remember. I'm going day to day right now. Yeah. Well, again, um, glass houses lobbing big rocks. We'll take cover. <laughs> Tony Preckwinkle, who created Brandon Johnson, who put him in that neighborhood on the west side from Aurora and said, this is where you're going to be. You're going to run for Cook County Commissioner. Um, she from, came out from Aurora. Well, he Brandon Johnson was born in Elgin. He lived in Aurora. And they, she he moved to that neighborhood on the west side because she wanted him to run and beat Richard Boykin because he was against her sugar tax. Right. So this is her endorsing him yesterday because she created him. He successfully championed efforts to bring more transparency and equity to public safety. He's been a leader in the county's efforts to eliminate crushing medical debt. He's also been a stalwart supporter of small businesses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any proof of any of that? And just... Can you distinguish the rhetoric? On either side, on the well, I, I used to say among the nine of them. Now among the two of them, because I, I it, 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 it's fine if you want to take Brandon Johnson to task, please do so. Now comparison and contrast, since it's a choice, it's a binary. Then, if you want to take out after Brandon Johnson, then please do explain to me how Paul Vallis differentiates himself from a particular position or particular statement that's associated with Brandon Johnson or his supporters. Silence, right. Mary Kay, Western Springs. Hey, good morning. Um, You know what I say, Dan, about... um I, I tell people this a lot. Don't put me in a slot, okay? I might be... You might think I'm a right, right, you know, far right winger, but you don't even know me. This is just what I've been talking about you don't know lately. Me. And you don't know me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, you might think you know me because I walk around and talk a lot around here in Western Springs. But well, that's um, one way to find out. Yeah. Right. Yes, for sure. And, you know, Amy, we do get more emotional as women. And uh, Dan's right that that's our problem. That's you know, lot. we're chicks. So we are like our kids, you know, the Thank schools you, we get. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> thank what? you. We are with that's our problem. Thank thank oh, oh boy. Wow. Let's oh. see if you can isolate that other... isolate that Mary Kay clip. I'm gonna be using that a lot. <clears throat> Craig Mount Greenwood. Oh hey, uh, good morning, Dan and Amy, and thank you for taking my call. Hey, listen, I don't like a lot of things that uh Vales said today, but you know, now that it's down to these two, you know. Mm-hmm. But here's mm-hmm. what I'm Vales can uh, really um capitalize on uh Johnson stepping on it by calling him a January sixer because now did all this stuff is coming out about January six and it's uh, that was a vicious uh, entrapment and trap for conservatives and patriots and uh, um, you know so on 
And well, you- uh, well, I don't, I don't see how Paul Vallis takes the position that uh, I'm proud to him to for him to call me a January sixth uh, insurrectionist because look at uh, the Tucker Carlson tapes and we've been vindicated. I don't think you're going to hear that from Paul Vallis. Obviously, I think you're going to hear I'm a lifelong Democrat and like you've hear heard on his and, and seen right. on his commercials. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Chris. But do you think they're going to start name calling and getting into all that, or just? Oh yeah, I hope so. Okay. I mean, you're you're you know less than four weeks to an election. I mean, I don't mean like like uh, you know schoolyard stuff, but I mean they should get into it back and forth. And if they want to play the label game, well, they're two Democrats. You expect them to play the label game. That's what Democrats do. Uh, so go is, ahead, have at it. And I I got to get this out here, Doctor Joyce Kerner, you know, former principal at Whitney Young. She came out and supported Phallus yesterday. This is this is great. People are saying he didn't make any difference. He made a difference by being there. He made a difference by being there. And I'm just being real, you guys. This guy is the real deal. He's the real deal, and he deserves this position. I suggest I Paul Vallis. He's the real deal on a T-shirt. What do you think? He gets credit for being there. <laughs> Paul Vallis. He exists. He's the real deal. I don't. I don't <laughs> understand. Okay, Milton Portage Park. Hey, Dan. Uh, Amy. Um, I agree with everything you're saying, but my question to you is then what are you sort of telling people to do if there's not a choice for conservatives? You sort of want them not to vote? Well, um, no, I'm not saying that. Thanks for the call, Milt. I'm saying saying something very simple. I am not going to pretend that Paul Vallis – was dis- dishonestly made a mockery of the support he was getting from center right voters in the primary. That's it. All right, I'm, I'm going to pretend that it, it didn't well, happen. That's fine. That's fine. But but now, so now you now you factor that in. You say, well, do I want somebody that maybe will essentially stop some of the bleeding, literally and figuratively, in the city? Or do I want the city to get worse faster so that you could actually stand up a real reform movement? To me, that's the operative question, and people can decide uh, the answer to the question yeah. how they see fit. I, I want to live in a safer place. He's going to be tougher on crime than Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson wants to hire social workers. Paul Vallis wants to hire police officers. All right, that's and a I think that it, and property taxes. I think eventually, if they're not going to say the same, they'll go down. Hopefully. Uh, <laughs> well, let's not get crazy. <laughs> well, okay, but I can okay. dream. A girl can dream. Right. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. 
Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. It's uh, been a while since we've done a check-in with Dr. Arthur Turovets, who is the president and founder of NJ Diet, njdiet.com. So we thought we'd remedy that by talking to him about uh, weight loss and healthy living, and we're doing that right now. Dr. Arthur Turovitz, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, guys. Always a pleasure to talk to you. How's everybody doing today? Very good, uh, and I know a lot of people are doing much better thanks to NJ Diet. So just to reset the table, uh, obviously we talk about it on the show, and we've talked to you about it before, but the uh, genesis of NJ Diet and how it differs from other weight loss programs out there. We uh, guarantee at least 20 pounds in 40 days. Um, men generally lose 35 to 45 plus. Women lose about 25 to 35. We use uh, hair, saliva, uh, personalized supplements for uh, each individual. Uh, we use DNA testing, which shows things like uh, ideal diet type, exercise regimens, needs for need for vitamins, um, different things uh, that are personalized to each individual to help them keep the weight off going forward. Uh, and that information can always be taken to any doctor uh, in the future. So, um, and uh, we, we guarantee the results, and we maintain. Uh, we see a maintenance of weight loss as well uh, because of all the different things. We have the correction days uh, that are set up after the program is complete, after someone reaches their um, uh, their ideal weight. Um, we have uh, correction days in place that even if the weight goes up by two, three pounds, we we tell you exactly what to do to knock it back down. So you should never get out of control. Uh, and it's totally different than anything else. Nobody else that I know that that I know about that uses uh, all the facets that we use. Just walk me through. Is it calorie counting or is it prepared meals? What is it? No, no, no prepared meals. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the reasons we have such an obesity epidemic in our country is because the preservatives, additives, hormone disruptors, junk in, uh, in, in, in pre-made meals. So programs that offer pre-made meals have a lot of sodium, have a lot of junk in them. Uh, preservatives and so forth, and and so um, if you're using that to lose weight, not only are you not only are you not not really helping yourself, you're actually hurting yourself because you're eating the junk that got you to this point to begin with. Uh, all those different chemicals in the food really really have uh, uh, terrible long-term effects. I mean, there's a, you know there's a name for it. It's called the Western diet, right? So it's named for us basically. Um, so if you're eating a lot of that junk, you're actually harming yourself. So we use natural foods. Um, during the program, people on a, on a, on a low-calorie diet, they're not hungry on it because we, with the testing and the supplements that we use, we're actually able to reroute what the body uses for fuel. So the body is burning uh, so much fat for fuel uh, that people aren't hungry despite being on a, on a very healthy hormone healing, uh, no additive, no preservative, uh, clean a healthy living diet uh, during the program. And then afterwards, obviously, we want people to maintain that also as much as possible. So that shows people, uh, you know, sort of, okay, I got, here's what I did to get here. And now I'm going to, now I'm going to use this going forward. So it's, it's almost like you break the, you break the patterns, you break, you break, uh, people's, uh, habits of eating bad food and actually turn them back into eating, eating healthy foods going and, forward. And so the, the component parts that are individually, individually tailored, you just spoke to, uh, the diet, what about exercise? Obviously, different people have different limitations with exercise. You know, not everybody can do an Ironman. And so how does that really? Does you, that can't work? Do it, you can't do an Ironman? I just did um, it this morning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's been thinking about I could, it. I could, I could maybe drive 30 <laughs> miles. I don't know <laughs> if I could tired. bike or swim. Yeah. 
Yeah, so no, actually during the program, we want to minimize how much exercise people are doing because the issue is is that, you know, we have so many people that come in and say, listen, I'm exercising, I'm running, I'm I'm kickboxing, I'm, you know, um, training training for this, I'm on a bike, I'm on a Peloton, I'm going to the gym, and they're still unable to lose the weight. And the reason is is because through all the different issues of, yo-yo dieting, digestive issues, um, hormonal imbalances, toxicities in the body, all these different things, the metabolism is actually, is actually killed. It's actually stuck. So we don't want to, we want to kind of fix everything during the 20, 21, 40 days, 60 days of the program, whatever people are doing. We want to fix the metabolism, get it working the right way. And then the DNA testing actually tells each individual what exercise regimen is perfect for them. So then when they're done with the program, I mean, you can walk, obviously, but we don't want any strenuous exercise during the program. We want to sort of re- reset the body, get it working the right way, and then when you come off the program and you're down, you know, 25 to 45 pounds or whatever it is, then uh, you want to start using, implementing the the personalized exercise that's ideal for you based on the DNA testing that we Oh, that's interesting. And so what, what's the, you know, everybody wants to know, what's the success rate if I do this? Uh, I know that you said 20 to 40 plus pounds in the first 40 days guarantee, but and then keep it off. But um, you've got thousands of patients now that have run this program, run the MJ Diet mm-hmm. program. What's the success rate? The success rate for losing at least 20 pounds, over 80%, right? Nothing's 100%, obviously, right. but over 85%, 80, 85% is the success rate for that. Uh, but the guarantee is in place. So, you know, if you, if, you know, it's very, very, very few people that don't hit their guaranteed weight loss, uh, contractually speaking. But if you're one of them um, and we've done everything we possibly can and you found the program and so forth, um, yeah, there's a, a refund set up that where you get a prorated refund for every pound you didn't lose uh, to meet the guarantee. But as I said, um, with, with men, it's very, very rare uh, that they don't hit the guarantee because men are losing nearly a pound a day wow. with women here and there, depending on, you know, hormonal, really uh, serious hormonal issues or, or menopause issues, maybe 15 to 20% don't hit uh, at least 20 pounds, but very, very few, as I said, but the what? guarantee is there. The guarantee is there in case, you know, you're, you're one of the people I'm speaking about. What if you're, you know, uh, you don't need to lose that much weight. You're, you're, um, you, you have know, a wedding coming up where you want to drop some. Well, but, but, but I mean, yeah. but even if, even if you say like I, I'm 195 and, and really I should be 180 and I want to be at 180, you know, going forward, it, does this, does this program still make sense for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've got, we've got a 21 day program, we've got a 40 day program. We've got a, also a 60 day extension program and so forth. So, um, I mean, we don't want to do this for like, you know, have a wedding coming up, right? And it's not, a, you know, we don't want to do crash dieting type of thing because that's going to hurt your metabolism going forward. But if you have to lose less weight than the 20 pound, well, we, we take a look. Uh, that's what the consultation's about. We bring you, we put you on a body composition scale. And so the composition, it's not just about weight. It's also about factors such as fat percentage, water percent, visceral fat rating, how your metabolism is working, calorie, uh, uh, how many calories your body's burning. So we, we take a look at all that on the body composition scale when people come in for their, um, for their uh, initial uh, visit. So we take a look at all those numbers and we basically tailor, you know, hey, here's what you got to lose. Here's what you, where you should be, but not just about weight because it's also about fat percent too because, you know, you might think you need 15 pounds to lose, 
let's say like in your example, but your body fat percentage may be very high. I'm not saying about you, but I'm just saying in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The body fat percentage may be really high, and, and really the uh, the key to health is fat percent in general and like visceral fat, which is the fat on the organs, specifically speaking. Uh, and so we really need to take a look at all those factors, see where you are, and then, yeah, we'll come up with a program designed for you. NJDiet.com or 855-5NJ-DIET. <laughs> He is Dr. Arthur Turovitz, the founder and president of NJDiet.com. Dr. Turovitz, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, Signature Bank. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, all right, a uh, little uh, cleansing breath with our friend from NJ Diets, Dr. Turovitz. Uh, getting back to the mayor's race. Yes, sir. I wanted to give people uh, more of an opportunity to weigh in here on a couple of things we opened up the show with. Number one, the debate tonight and what you want to hear from Paul Vallis in particular. I mean, you sort of know what you're going to hear from Brandon Johnson. But what you want to hear and how you want Paul Vallis to engage Brandon Johnson to distinguish himself, to bring home the contrast to the electorate. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Yeah, I got a lot of text messages, too. Uh, okay, I'll get the one second. Well, yeah. the, the corresponding uh, or the, the corollary to that, what you want Paul Vallis to do, is this choice that I uh, essentially presented to Milt from Portage Park when he called in, what I'm saying to do. Here's my handle on the mayor's race. Just, this is just my perspective. I don't trust Paul Vallis to do the right thing. I've made that clear. Okay. But I completely trust Brandon Johnson to do the wrong thing. So the center-right voter's choice, it seems to me, is as follows. Do I stabilize the pace of the city's descent or increase it, hoping to spawn a real reform reaction? That seems to me the choice. Maybe some people say, well, Paul Vallis is going to do more than just stabilize the descent. He's going to start to turn it around. Maybe. okay, but I have lower expectations. Stabilize the dissent or increase the pace of the dissent to spawn a real reform reaction. That, to me, is the question before center-right voters. That's the choice they make, and I think the candidates associated with those two choices are obvious. 312-642-5600, Turnkey Depro answer line. Somebody texted him, Paul Vallis was the boss at CPS. Where did his kids go to school? Well, Paul Vallis's kids were um, 
out of high school when he took the CPS job. Okay. I'm just insane. Yeah, and Brandon right. Johnson has three kids, and they do go to a magnet school. Okay. Okay. What do you want? How do you want Paul Vallis to address Brandon Johnson tonight? Ugh. What do you want to see him do? Do you want to see him do the Rose Garden approach that he uh, did in the primary? Or does he need to roll up his sleeves and, at minimum, counterpunch? Does he have it in him? I mean, I don't, well, I don't know. That's why I can't. I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting 6 o'clock tonight. <laughs> I mean, if, he, if, he's, if his reaction to you're a right-wing insurrectionist is, have you seen my four-point plan to reorganize the city's economic development mm. office? That's not going to fly. Well, but he does have the four-point plan. He's a nerd. And that's to, like, run, be a nerd. We need a nerd. We need something. We need a nerd. That's, we need a nerd. That's, that's on my T-shirt, too, That's on the better back than it. he's the real deal. Um, yeah. All right. We'll keep workshopping the, uh, the merchandising of Paul yeah. Vallis. Huh. 312-642-5600. Pro Answer line 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Another text message. Vallis is dreaming if he thinks he's going to be be able to hire police officers. Isn't going to happen. No one wants the job. Uh, I disagree. Well, I mean, I think I think the the you right the uh, attractiveness of the position changes if they if 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 those people who want to be law enforcement feel like they're going to get you know, the civilian leadership of the city to back them as law enforcement. And and for example, even when they didn't, I mean, uh, to that point. We had the officer on who was one of 106 who left the city to go to a suburban department and wanted back in, and now they're mm-hmm. coming back in. Yep. And so there's, a... there's something about, I mean, there's something where, you know, it's like, there's something with law enforcement, particularly if you're from a law enforcement family right. in a big city like Chicago, that, that, that legacy is a strong magnet mm-hmm. to do the job even in the most difficult of circumstances, which is a testament to cops. And they had a graduation ceremony for cadets yesterday. By the way, Superintendent Brown wasn't there, but nobody knew where he was. <laughs> Just didn't show up. Uh, tweet from Chicago Ray. Dan, I'm with Amy. Vallis is the least corrupt of the two, so don't be so touchy. I'm not really being touchy. I'm just... Uh, You're just being you. <laughs> well, I'm, but I'm also explaining my position in the right. face of comments like, you know, uh, you don't live in Chicago anymore. Okay. Well, so I mean, just on that. So, so um, what am I allowed to do and not allowed to do? Um, since I'm not in Chicago anymore, were those people making those arguments say um, that I should stop supporting the chess team at Ella Flag Elementary on the West Side? Should should I stop uh, supporting Envision Unlimited that provides uh, services and residential housing for adults with developmental disabilities in Chicago? Am I not allowed to do that anymore because I'm not in Chicago? No, I just I mean, want to know because I, I want to know where the lines are. And, you know, some of my other friends, too, who are v- really engaged in Chicago and still have interest in Chicago and still do philanthropy in Chicago. They want to know, too, if they're out because they're out. Chris on uh, I-65. Yeah, I don't think it's ever coming back. And it's not necessarily because of the governor. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the mayor. It's because of the governor and the legislature and things like the Safety Act and the Police Reform Bill of 2015. These cops might come back to be part of the Chicago Police Department, but when they get there, they're still not going to be able to do anything. So 
I, I, I like your premise that you might slow the decline with Dallas, but I don't think, no matter what happens, I don't think it's coming back. Thanks for the call, Chris. Well, there's been a lot of scar tissue built up, so, uh, you know, getting back to pre-injury status is going to take some time. I mean, no matter who was elected, even if, uh, let's, you know, a dream world, Ron DeSantis is, uh, moves to Chicago and he's elected mayor. And, uh, and, and he has control of the city council. Even in that scenario, which, mm-hmm. of course, is, you know, a dream world, a dreamscape, right? Another <laughs> dimension. Um, you're not going to turn. You, you don't just dig yourself out of the debt and the detritus and the uh, and, and, and f- at least 50 years of terrible public policy in every respect from K through 12 education to. Uh, all of the housing and economic policies, public safety, and so forth. You, that that doesn't just that you don't just flip a switch. You don't just snap your fingers. No matter no matter how talented the person is. So that's what I'm saying. Stabilizing the descent, the uh, pace of the descent is where your expectation should be. And maybe once you stabilize, then you can figure out how to you know avoid impact. Uh, but but that this is a long haul. In the best of scenarios, it's a long haul. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Morning, Dan and Amy. Well, Fox News has Tucker Carlson unleashed a maelstrom, didn't he? Yep, back at it last night, part two. Uh, Monday night was uh, part one of the January 6th tapes selected by culling through some 44,000 hours of footage provided by Kevin McCarthy, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to Tucker Carlson, uh, talked about his staff, his producers combing through this over the last three weeks to address some of the key parts of the case that was presented by that January 6th star chamber. And so we went through those yesterday with officer video of officer Brian Sicknick with video of the QAnon shaman with, uh, uh, what was the third video of the, uh, um, what am I blanking on? Well, there was a there was a, a third video too that would that addressed a, a, a oh the uh, Josh Howley fleeing uh, that oh, yeah, he was fleeing true. as a coward when it, in fact he was sort of at the back of the pack as Capitol Police were uh, evacuating the Senate. So there's a lot here, but I think we need to start with well, first of all, Speaker McCarthy was asked if he has any regrets about providing said tape to. Uh, to, to said tapes to Tucker Carlson to use as he, he fits, and Tucker Carlson made the point, which we'll restate, that he cleared this through the House to make sure there were no security concerns about what he was going to air before he aired it, something the J6 committee didn't do, but I digress. Here's Kevin McCarthy. Any regrets? Hounded by the press corps yesterday. 
Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker. Because of the footage that you gave Tucker Carlson last night, he went on and said this was a mostly peaceful chaos, as he said. He downplayed Brian Sicknick's death, said it was not related to January 6th, said this was not an insurrection. Do you regret giving him this footage so he could whitewash the events of that day? No. Um, I, I said at the very beginning, transparency. And so what I wanted to produce for everybody is exactly what I said, that people could actually look at it and see what's gone on that day. So. But why, but, 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 but Mr. Speaker, Look, each person can come up with their own conclusion, but I, what I just want to make sure is I had transparency. Do you believe because I know in CNN, I mean, I had here where you guys actually broke where we were. This was a secret location, Fort McLaren. I don't know if you got concerned by that. I don't even know from a point of view of security if we could ever be taken there again. But when you broke that at CNN, that was a real concern to a lot of people. I had a real concern also when I wanted to make sure transparency looked. Um, the officer's death is tragic, and uh, any time an officer is passed uh, in this situation, uh, I want to make sure they're protected. I want to make sure the transparency is, goes forward. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, 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 was this in any way part of the deal that you made no, to win the speakership no. to specifically give the content to No, the, to answer, the answer is no. And if, uh, if you follow, I'm not sure if you were there the times before, I got asked the question um, in a press. I would do in the process. I've watched on January 6th committee how it was only politically driven. Now on the January 6th committee, you couldn't have the minority side wasn't allowed to put people on. Um, and I just thought it was fair if someone asked me the question. Just transparency. So what I tried to do is be able to release the information, which we'll do to everybody. I worked with the Capitol Police. I asked them for any clips on the way that they had concern with the security level. Only one of the clips did, and we were able to change that. An interesting thing the Capitol Police told us when we went through this is that January 6th never asked them about that, the security. So, Right. This is an important point, I think, because uh, this is the fault of Nancy Pelosi and the members of that J6 Star Chamber, including our very own former Congressman Adam Kinzinger. You had a chance. You had a chance to have this all hashed out side by side with a bipartisan committee. So you want to play some clips? Well, Jim Jordan can play some clips, too. And people can hear the arguments, hear the characterizations, hear from witnesses that have including Capitol Police officers who have very different perspectives than the Capitol Police officers you did hear from. Uh, during those star chamber proceedings and had their star turn on CNN and MSNBC. You had the opportunity to do it, but you wanted to put together a star chamber, not a bipartisan commission where dissent was allowed. So you, oh my gosh, uh, he releases this, uh, these, these, uh, you know, the camera footage and, and uh, Tucker Carlson selects these clips to address the J6 arguments and by extension, the arguments that were amplified by the D.C. press corps. Well, this could have all been done in an appropriate fashion, side by side with everybody having the opportunity to make their case. But you, Pelosi and surrender Republicans, chose not to do that. And I, and I wish McCarthy would have gone that next step. I mean, I appreciate what he's done, and he deserves credit for it, and standing and delivering in front of the press corps like he did yesterday. 
but go that next step to say, is could have all been different. But you said, no, we're not going to seat uh, on the J6 committee the members of your caucus that you want. We're going to pick cherry pick two surrender Republicans, Kinzinger and Cheney, who will do our bidding to give it the appearance of uh, bipartisanship when it's didn't matter whether there's an R versus D. They had all come to the same conclusion and they were there to bootstrap the same case. Could have all been different. You chose to make it different. You chose D.C. press corps to give to confer legitimacy to this illegitimate body. These are your choices. These are the consequences. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D.A. turnkey dot pro text line. But before we get to what Tucker had to say yesterday, there were calls for him not to be able to say anything yesterday. Chuck Schumer. Uh, well, before he took to the Senate floor, he had this to say, uh, a plea, really a demand in the direction of Rupert Murdoch. These lies continue tonight. Rupert Murdoch, who has admitted they were lies and said he regretted it, has a special obligation to stop Tucker Carlson from going on tonight now that he's seen how he has perverted and slimed the truth and from letting them go on again and again and again. Not because their views deserve such a proprium, but because our democracy depends on it. Democracy. Threat to democracy. Tucker Carlson has a show. Wow. That's a threat to democracy because he's not a real... He's not a real journal. He's not a real newsman, you know, like the assembled D.C. press corps that uh, steps and fetches for Karine Jean-Pierre. Tucker Carlson is a propagandist publicly pretending to be a newsman. We know that we know that Fox News knows that Rupert Murdoch knows and that he knows that they're liars, that they're propagandists that they're destroying America for some kind of monetary or other advantage. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are they so jumpy about? The truth, maybe? And when did the left decide who's a news person and who's a journalist or not? Those lines are all gray, though. Oh, well, they... they. I grew just... up at a time when they were defined, and now it's all a gray area. And who well, sure. So uppity. They decide every day based on, you know, what you are putting out there. Are you hewing the line? Right, because if you're not asking the questions that they want asked, off with your head. Take their press pass. Get rid of them. Silence them. Well, Tucker Carlson uh, did go on. The show must go on. And Good. It did. Thank God. Yeah. Rupert Murdoch did not heed the calls of one Pagliacci. Because he works at a station that is an FCC license, so he is a journalist. But okay, go on. Thomas Massey, the uh, Republican, libertarian-leaning Republican congressman from Kentucky, he went on, uh, Tucker, to talk about— um, the tapes that Tucker played on Monday night and what he would like to see happen next. And and in addition, uh, despite the fact that uh, he had seen a lot, that even his eyes were open to new things based on what was aired on Monday night. Take a listen. You've exposed so many lies tonight with these tapes that uh, it's changed my perception of what happened two years ago. And I was there. The, the tapes of people milling peacefully about And my hat's off to your producers for sitting over there and going through hours of this. Yes. But I would love to to 
you know, to unleash the resourcefulness of the American public on these videos, I think they should be released. You know, I think it's poppycock that they can't be released because of some security issues. Look, I'm the one who's supposed to be secured by these buildings, and right. I'm not worried about releasing them. They need to be released. In fact, there was a Rasmussen uh, poll that just came out that showed over 80 percent, 78 percent of Democrats and 86 percent of Republicans say that all the videos should be released. And um, and they should, because, as you said, Tucker, you didn't have facial recognition software there. We also could we need a complete catalog of all of the feds who were there. Tell us right. who they were. Let's exactly. go, let's watch the videos and let's see what they did, because there's some really strange behavior uh, on those videos of people behind the police lines in plain clothes, like touching them on the shoulder, talking in their right. ear, walking up. You know, around boundaries as if they weren't even there. It's very odd. Uh, I'm the one who asked Merrick Garland. I showed him the tape of Ray Epps. The Democrats didn't like it. I had to show it on an iPad for for Merrick Garland to watch it, and then he refused to say how many feds were there. But that that was also in the Rasmussen poll. Fifty seven percent of Democrats think that it's yes. at least somewhat likely that feds, agents of the federal government, were not just there, but were also encouraging people to riot or go into the Capitol. Oh. Uh, right. And, you know, to, again, Thomas Massey, he's somebody that uh, crossed swords with Trump during Trump's presidency on spending issues. Uh, wasn't afraid to do that. Um, I mean, I think he's a fairly principled, uh, as I said, libertarian leaning legislator, legislator. And so he has real concerns about federal government overreach sort of as a matter of principle, which is refreshing. In addition to that, he's one of the more intelligent members of Congress. I think he's MIT educated engineer or maybe a bio biomedical engineer background. Um, Couldn't get into Georgia Tech. Huh? So this is not, you know, somebody. Yeah, right. This is uh, not somebody howling at the moon. Right. Uh, OK. This is not. No, like, said, uh, and I never knew about that. Fifty seven percent of Democrats thought the feds were encouraging. Well, I mean, there's a lot of video footage and there's a lot of unexplained. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. On, on, there's a, a lack of explanation around the behavior of Ray Epps, for example, um, who we've talked about before and has been much talked about. The only protester that Adam Kinzinger will defend. Uh, Tucker Carlson also uh, took the opportunity on his show for as long as Chuck Schumer allows him to have it to respond to Pagliacci and the call for silencing and to also address uh, what you raised, Amy, which is this um, the reaction, the reaction from all quarters, uh, including Republicans, Mitch McConnell denouncing Fox, uh, Mitt Romney, Tom Tillis. Oh, this is dangerous and terrible and bull jive and so on and so forth. Tucker Carlson addressed it all. Red in the face anger. What is that? Well, it's not outrage. Of course, it's fear. It's panic. Those videos, which we did not retouch, which we brought to you after running everyone by the Capitol Police to make certain that we didn't imperil anybody. We told you that last night. Those videos touch a nerve because they're a threat to the lies that Chuck Schumer has been telling for the last 26 months and not just Chuck Schumer. We should also tell you that Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, was joined in this outrage by the Senate Minority Leader. And that would be a Republican, Mitch McConnell. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why is it so important 
that they would degrade themselves by telling such obvious lies and calling for censorship. Why? What are they trying to protect? That might be worth exploring, and we plan to. And the second thing that we learned from this is that they're on the same side. The Senate Majority Leader joins the Senate Minority Leader. Tom Tillis, Mitt Romney. (laughs) They're all on the same side. So it's actually not about left and right. It's not about Republican and Democrat. Here you have people with shared interests. The open borders people. The people, <laughs> the people like Mitch McConnell, who are living in splendor on Chinese money. Hi, uh, Also, the people that were, uh, that, that were in positions of authority in advance of and on January 6th. The legislative leaders and their respective sergeants at arms. Right? That's right. And what we still don't understand or know as to the communication between all of these parties. We do know and we see that Capitol Police um, at best presented a disjointed approach to crowd control. uh, That we know from Capitol Capitol Police officers like Tariq Johnson, who was on Tucker yesterday, that uh, there was a lack of senior leadership and responsiveness, for example, uh, Officer Johnson recounting how he wanted to evacuate senators and was waiting for the high sign and wasn't getting one. ...was disseminated like it was supposed to be. Once protesters moved inside the building, Johnson's first concern was the safety of senators. His job was to protect them. In rising panic, he called over the radio for direction and assistance. Even now, two years later, he is baffled by the response he got. I was requesting permission to evacuate the Senate side, um, the Senate chambers, um, because I had a clear line of sight to get them out the Senate door, and I didn't get permission. Um, the dispatcher called a couple times to see if I can get permission. No response. With Yogananda Pittman and his other supervisors unresponsive, Johnson says he decided to begin the evacuation of senators himself. The person that I thought was going to authorize the evacuation didn't do it. I wanted to get those members of Congress out as quickly as I could. That's why I initiated, um, you know, those evacuations. Me being disciplined, um, it wasn't as important as not getting the members of Congress and their staff to safety. Footage we reviewed seems to bolster Johnson's... And so Tariq Johnson not called before the January 6th Star Chamber. No interest in hearing about uh, uh, arguably the unpreparedness or unresponsiveness of Capitol Police senior leadership in advance of and on the day of. Len in Highland Park on Chicago's Morning Answer. Let's talk about Nancy Pelosi. I hold her responsible for everything that happened on on January 6th because she had enough forewarning. to call the National Guard and, you know, even Trump uh, three days before mentioned that it should be done. But let's go back to the August before January 6th. Let's go back to the convention where none of the the Democratic convention, where none of the riots all over the country were mentioned once. Okay, let's go back to when Trump wanted to extend unemployment benefits for people not through no fault of their own, could not go back to work because there was no place to go back to work. People were left out of benefits for five months. 
from August because of Nancy Pelosi, because it was before an election. So that's what she cares about American people. Okay. And let's talk about the suppression of Hunter Biden uh, and all that news before the election. And let's talk about the, uh, the jab that it wasn't announced till a week after the, the election. That's why people were pissed off. But when it comes down to that day, simply it was Nancy's fault. I'll let you go from there. All right, Len, thanks for the call. Rich, Indian Head Park. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. I think the reason why the Democrats and Schumer are so furious about uh, Tucker Carlson uh, showing these tapes is because he exposed them uh, for uh, not showing the American people the whole picture of what really happened on January 6th. He didn't cherry pick or lie. He just showed tapes that the, uh, that the Democrats uh, edited out. In fact, didn't they hire somebody to edit uh, the tapes to show just what they wanted the American people to see? Well, well they had right, primetime right. specials, call, remember? And they had a Hollywood producer create, remember? They had a, yes. um, right. the open, the January 6th commission. There's some, there's some reporting that they also doctored some of the tapes. There's, this is reporting. I don't know if this is true. I don't think this has been confirmed. Some reporting that they doctored some of the video, too, in, uh, and um, infused audio that wasn't there, screaming and, and tumult that wasn't actually in the video. To, for dramatic effect, um, but I mean, there were idiots there though that day, and I don't, I don't well, like that they're attacking police. That makes me sick. Of, co- but of then course, there's of another course. side to the story that they kept from the American people. Well, and here's the thing too: for all of those who are Republicans and Democrats who are being critical of Tucker Carlson and Kevin McCarthy for releasing the camera footage to Tucker Carlson, for all those who are saying, "Oh, I stand by the Capitol Chief's report." like Mitch McConnell did yesterday, and Fox News was wrong to air this. Well, um, why don't you respond on point? Right. You, you have the, the Sicknick video, you have the QAnon shaman, you have the Josh Hawley. Well, provide whatever video you want to provide. You could do it in a, in a hearing. You could do it in a press conference. All these politicians could assemble the press, particularly if they're going to tackle this topic. Um, put together the footage you think people should see. Respond to the arguments or provide explanations as to the escort that the escorts plural that the QAnon shaman got around the Capitol building. Well, Capitol Police did respond to that yesterday. They said, you know, that was outrageous and false. What Fox and Tucker Carlson did, they said Capitol Police were not tour guides. That was the de-escalation yeah, well, we, mode, we had, the training had, that they were taught. Yeah, we addressed that. We addressed that de-escalation. I know we addressed right. that yesterday because that's been their standard, their pat line. Right. Because some of this, people meandering about the Capitol with Capitol Police there in a position to arrest. Oh, this is all de-escalation, de-escalation. Really? So, so you have one guy, one that you're uh, escorting around, and he passes nine officers, and he couldn't have been taken into custody and removed. Uh, explain to us about the uh, the the police line that was set up. That broke down when a police officer apparently uh, improperly fired a tear gas canister, you know, misfired a tear gas canister, and police had to abandon their posts on the line because they were overcome by the tear gas and seeking cover from the tear gas canister that was fired, and that allowed the crowd to advance on the Capitol. Uh, address Ray Epps. Address the people, the footage we have of people uh, excoriating. I'm talking about the 
protesters excoriating police. Where's the backup? You're losing control. This is our capital. We have footage of that. Was that ever shown by the Star Chamber? No. Because the whole play is everybody's an insurrectionist. Everybody there is an insurrectionist. Everybody who voted for Trump is an insurrectionist. Everybody who doesn't abide the official narrative is an insurrectionist. Well, go pound sand. Now the battle has been joined because uh, people that are inquisitive and are not just going to be force-fed the official narrative have material that prompts questions. So you can either answer them or you can try the hi-hat like you saw from the political ruling class yesterday and see how well that works out for you. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy talking about uh, the Tucker tapes and the uh, fallout yesterday after his show on Monday in particular, where there were calls from Poliachi to have Tucker Carlson taken off the air and all of the usual suspects hurried to their usual posts to offer their usual cover stories and moral indignation. Not convincing. If there's any place that moral indignation uh, is appropriate, it may very well be with those who are imprisoned and have been for some time, in the case of some, two years, without trial. For, in many cases, nonviolent crimes related to their alleged conduct in January 6th. Julie Kelly is going to join us later in the show. She was on with Tucker Carlson, and she made an excellent point, one we make a lot when we talk about domestic crime in Chicago. Don't just look at the mayor. Don't just look at the police. Don't just look at the prosecutor. Also look at the judges. Of every judge on the D.C. District Court, I want to emphasize the real villains here are the federal judges in Washington, D.C., who have allowed the government to play every single game to keep this evidence out of the hands of defendants, violating their oath of office to protect the rights of defendants and their due process rights. And the government just announced in two months ago, in January, that they were still uploading global, they call discovery, which means material related to the entire investigation. What they did was arrest people first, find the evidence later, and cover up what could um, potentially uh, exonerate these defendants. And uh, speaking of uh, exonerating perhaps at least some of the defendants still awaiting trial... Uh, a uh, defense attorney who represents some of those charged with crimes related to their behavior on January 6th, alleged behavior. His name is Joseph McBride. He was on Laura Ingram's show, and he was asked whether or not some of what Tucker released and what may additionally be forthcoming is exculpatory. Take a listen. Yes, unequivocally, some of them will benefit. We are already aware of information that has not been provided 
up until this point, meaning that the Department of Justice had two years to provide all of the information that we have been asking for. They sat on it and they deliberately withheld it from us. They never imagined in a million years that the Speaker of the House would say, hey, guess what, American public? Guess what, Tucker Carlson? Guess what, Joe McBride? Take a look at this video footage that you've been denied. The idea that Brady evidence has been withheld from my clients and from other January 6th clients at large is not an imaginatory comment. I am not being hyperbolic when I say when I say this. Double the amount of CCTV footage has been made available to us. There is no question that exculpatory evidence will be available in that swath of video footage. And for the people who have already gone to trial, just think about Jacob Chansley, what he was accused of, being the face of the insurrection, the face of this movement. We saw him getting entrapped, getting led around by Capitol Police yesterday. That video should exonerate him. He is not well, alone you- in this. That's the QAnon shaman, yeah. of course, and he's serving three and a half years in a federal prison in Arizona at present. Um, doesn't so, he have some, well, we can ask Julie Kelly, too, but doesn't he suffer from some form of mental illness? Yeah, he was diagnosed uh, with uh, mental illness before he was discharged from the Navy. Um, so he, here's the thing, too, I mean, what Joseph McBride is saying, well, you know, exculpatory evidence, if you can get it to court, if you can get these cases to trial. I mean, there again is the tunnel vision of these star chamber participants uh, and the the Dems and the GOP bedwetters and their press corps. There is no interest in this from a lot of quarters where there's otherwise interest in eliminating bail, uh, eliminating bail. So people are ROR'd um, uh, or, you know, ankle monitored, whatever, when it comes to domestic crime. But when it comes to what uh, obstruction of justice, a disturbing the peace, a trespassing charge, somebody can sit in a federal prison in D.C. for two years awaiting trial. I mean, we have 97 people out on electronic monitoring in Chicago who've, cre- you know, for who've uh, committed violent crimes such as rape, armed robbery, carjackings. And well, this, this is you on shaman's going to be sitting there for three and a half years. Well, he's in prison. He's been he's convicted. But right. It's a little bit different than being detained for two years without trial, that now your due process rights are being violated. Uh, So in addition to that, um, with with respect to these uh, defendants, uh, I, I, I just don't understand how you don't address this situation, this and 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 the government's. uh taking forever to put their cases together, these people sitting in prison. And so how do we address it when you can't address it on the merits? Well, you say they're insurrectionists, a conspiracy to overthrow the government. It's more serious than a domestic crime. And that's essentially the cover story they've been using, among among other cover stories. As to the matter of the QAnon shaman and others that were milling about the Capitol, seemingly uh, being escorted around uh, by Capitol Police, like they were docents at the Capitol. Uh, McBride responded to that de- escalation argument we ended last segment with saying this. You have two types of entrapment, old school entrapment, where an officer willfully induces you to commit a crime, and entrapment by estoppel, where a member of the public relies on a representation from a member of government to think that something is okay. When you are being, when you are receiving a tour of the interior of the United States Capitol, when you say, hey, can I see the Holy of Holies, the Senate chamber, this room and that room, backstage passes, 
when they are taking you around and showing you everything, the inference is that you've been given permission. The idea that that man was charged for that crime is objectionable and it is wrong. It is clearly entrapment yeah. by estoppel, and they need to appeal. Well, well, you know, maybe some of these defendants didn't get the representation they needed. But regardless, um, you, you just have to you just have to wonder uh, what the thinking is here. And this is not to say that, again, there were not people that were uh, protesting that got out of hand and they violated the law and they should be held to account under the law. This is not, I'm not saying this was a mostly peaceful protest and so on and so forth. This definitely got out of hand. You should know better as an adult than to enter into areas that are prohibited. I mean, you can't, honestly, the reasonable man standard, you can't believe that you can enter the Capitol and go up to the speaker's chair and start making pronouncements or chill out in Nancy Pelosi's office and so on and so forth. The reasonable that does not meet a reasonable person standard when it comes to understanding right from wrong in this context. Fine. But that does not provide any defense to the time it's taken to bring these individuals to trial to the lack of transparency, both with in terms of the evidence that is and should be publicly available. Here we go again with sort of like everything's national security. Everything is classified. Everything needs to be kept behind uh, lock and, and key because why? Because why? Because we don't answer questions, because there's an ongoing investigation, because national security is at stake, because everything's a threat to our democracy. I'm sorry, the real threat they see to our democracy, it seems to me, is Americans left to their own judgments. That's the real threat to their democracy, their definition of what democracy is and what our representative republic is. The last thing they want to do is leave Americans to their own judgments, provide the same information or substantially the same information they have access to, to draw your own conclusions. That's what really frightens them. Grant in Rockford, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hello? Hey, Grant. Oh, hey. Uh, my original point was at what point oh, is Chucky Schumer... What's that? Sorry, you've got... Sorry. The, we've, we've, our munchkin line is back. We're, we're, it's a technical workshop over here. Never mind. Oh, go good, 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 good. Uh, Chippendale. Um... Just At what point is Chuck Hugh Schumer responsible for trampling on, like, Tucker Carlson's First Amendment? You know, they freak out over Trump sharing a meme of body slamming a CNN logo, but calling for him to be Chuck, uh, Tucker to be removed is fine. I think you, touched, you and Julie touched on a bigger point. It's the judges. The judges are the ones who wouldn't hear any of the signed affidavits for the election rigging when they stole it. There's plenty of evidence, but the judges never let it come to court. It, they were signed affidavits. Those are admissible in court. So I look forward to hearing my Munchkin boys. Keep beating this drum, guys. Thanks for the call, Grant. Well, the, the, the election, the legal challenges of the election, that's a different kettle of fish altogether, talking about civil cases uh, and meeting a, uh, a threshold to uh, survive motion to dismiss versus uh, criminal proceedings where due process rights are attached. And you would think should be abided. And I think there's real questions about whether, in fact, that's the case. In fact, I think Julie Kelly would go further than that. Uh, John in Naperville. You know, every single American 
I don't care what party you're from. Every single American should be very wary of the left and also this government operating in darkness. Every single, you know, you look at the schools with their hidden agendas, with, you know, every single thing should be transparent. Every single bill that comes out should be posted for 30 days before people get a chance to vote on it. Every single school curriculum should be posted if they want federal money. Every single video from this and also the Minnesota should be posted. Transparency will get rid of these cockroaches. Thanks for the call, John. Glenn Oakbrook. Yes, good morning. Uh, two questions. Uh, n- number one is uh, why weren't these tapes released when Nancy Pelosi was speaker? And number two is if you are in office and you swear an oath to the Constitution and you violate that oath, you should resign and lose your pension, I think. All right. Thanks for the call, Glenn. Uh, George in Naperville. These Tucker tapes have given us a Dorian Gray picture exposing all the ugly faces of the politicians still using January 6th against us. Thanks for the call, George. Chuck Delavan. Chuck. Hey, uh, back when I was on the blast furnace, I had to work uh, 30 days straight, 16 hours a day. Our representatives should be uh, investigating this, not not uh, 40 hours a week. They should be doing this 16 hours a day, nonstop, and bringing these people to justice. Because this is horrible, what they've done to us. And I said all along this was a big con, whether it was the the, uh, the, the virus or whether it was this going on here. And I tell you what, everybody on my job site, I got 50 guys on my job site. They are so fired up right now. I can imagine everybody across the whole United States. They're not too happy right now. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call, Chuck. Well, the other thing this does is it provides a great political benefit to Trump. I don't think that's the intention here, um, but the, that's one of the byproducts, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So, and and the more questions linger and reasonable answers aren't provided, like about the federal government's involvement and whether or not they had agents in the crowd and how many and what were they doing and so on and so forth, the more... The argument about, oh, Trump incited this siege on the Capitol argument comes apart. And so if you think that that's going to be and I'm not, this is not an advocacy for Trump, it's just analysis. If you think uh, you're, say, a, 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 an anti-Trumper, you know, GOP bedwetter type or you're of the left. And if Trump runs again, if he's the nominee, we've got this J6 as an albatross around his neck. Mm, less and less so. Frank and Elgin. Hey, Dan. Hey, Amy. Uh, I'm reading Andy McCarthy, and he's arguing a legal point that uh, I wanted to get your opinion on. He says that... Um, Carlson pled guilty because there is nothing exculpatory on the video clips. He says, as a matter of law, what is exculpatory or incriminating is not assessed based on the media narrative, based on specific charges of the case. He says here, Chancellor obstructed Congress. One need not engage in an insurrection or even a riot to obstruct Congress. One need only be in place, um, one has no lawful right to be in and willfully engage in action that prevents Congress from uh, conducting its proceedings. In that sense, the just released video is the antithesis of ex- 
inculpatory evidence. It shows Chancellor committing the crime he was charged with. Wanted to get well, your take on that, Dan. Well, uh, thanks for the call, Frank. I mean, it's it's a interesting argument that McCarthy makes, and there may be some merit to it. I don't have the the full body of evidence that was presented at the QAnon shaman's trial. Uh, so, you know, I can only sort of theorize about it. Two things I would say. One is you heard an argument in response to that from Joseph McBride, uh, the estoppel argument, that uh, once he was being escorted by Capitol Police to enter the chamber to go up on the dais as they're milling about, then he has been given the e premature of authority to say this is okay to do. They opened the door for him. You see that. And well, that's that's one argument. And I'm not saying it's it's going to win the day because McCarthy has a point that, again, if you shouldn't have been in the place in the first place, if your actions resulted in the abdication of members of Congress, that's how you make out an obstruction charge. So I think it's I think there are interesting legal arguments on both sides. And without seeing a lot more of the evidence. I'm not necessarily I'm not going to come down on either side of it. But the one thing I would say is even if you make out the obstruction charge on the uh, the basis which Andy McCarthy argues, uh, three and a half years in federal prison for that. Come on. Got a text message question for you, Dan. Could those in jail file violation of civil rights against the government? They could. They could ultimately. Gene and Barrington. I was just wondering why the subject of the Capitol Police that committed suicide after January 6th has never been brought up again. I mean, I know it's personal information, but it, it seems it could be relevant to the story. Yeah, he was one of the four that Thanks, Biden Jean. said died that day or following days after the riots. Right. And and I mean, and what, what do we know about I, I know. that in terms of what his what was going on in his life, what the motivation was? I mean... Uh, it's such like, a stretch to to put him in that category. The the, the arguments they get away with making, it's, and and anybody suggests, uh, well, anybody asks questions, much less lodges dissent, is just ridiculed. You have to show proximate cause. Whatever happened to Brian Sicknick and his stress was the proximate cause of his death. Show me a a coroner's report that says that. Uh, and the same thing with the. Uh, the, the cop who unfortunately committed suicide. Mike in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Just two quick notes. Um, Schumer, I think, isn't trying to convince anybody with his uh, little speech, calling Carlson a propagandist and the whole bit. He's calling out to his antagonists in Antifa and everything else, saying, if this goes any further and gets traction, and, and, you know, justice starts, you know, having a little bit of light. These bastards are going to take to the street. And that's what that guy's all about. The other thing real quickly is I don't they've protected themselves that they can tell a lie as long as it's in Congress or they have some kind of law that protects them. That's got to end. If they say that this guy died because he was beaten to death with a fire extinguisher and it's not true at all and it's provably not true, somebody needs to go to jail. And it's not the guys that the January, you know, not the January 6th, uh, you know, uh, insurgents. So thank you so much. Thanks for, you. for the call, Well, they I originally said, right, that he got hit in the head with a fire extinguisher. Right. Then that was debunked. And then they said it was bear spray. And then that got debunked. So Yeah, right. Well, and, and again, I, 
nobody goes to jail and we don't want anybody going to jail because they got it wrong or they even miss they even purposely misstated something for political purposes. We don't go, want to go down the path of putting people in jail because they're political propagandists, for example. The cure to speech that is noxious, including untrue, more speech, more speech. Remember, that's the the Brandeisian position and the conservatives' position, the Patriots' position. So let's maintain that. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Novak Djokovic is the best tennis player in the world. He's still the best tennis player in the world, right? I think so. Yeah. Well, today, so. this morning, he is. I still... Because uh, we said I, so. Well, I I stopped watching tennis when Bjorn Borg retired. So oh, it's, yeah. So it's been a minute. I don't keep yeah. up on these things. You missed the like headband, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, Floridians including a couple of Florida politicians named Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis, would like Novak Djokovic to play in the Miami Open. I'm sure the you know, professional tennis would like Novak Djokovic because the fans would like Novak Djokovic to play in the Miami Open too. But oh, yeah. he can't. I, <laughs> Why I, can't he, Dan? I think most people don't realize this, that you're oh, still goodness. required... You're still required to get a vaccine to enter this country. Yeah. And Djokovic, as you may remember, as the case was quite celebrated, refused to get the vax. He was bounced from the Australia Open, of course, because the lockdown's there, draconian in nature. Um, and he still hasn't gotten it. And America still has this policy that requires you to be vaxxed to enter. DeSantis writing, seeking a waiver, and Rick Scott's been on the case, too, Senator Rick Scott. The time has come to give up the fiction that COVID vaccines remain a necessary tool to promote public health. Florida Surgeon General has issued guidance recommending against the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines for men 18 to 39, which would cover Djokovic. Um, I respectfully ask you grant his requested exemption so that he may delight and inspire tennis fans in Florida and around the nation. Well, should Novak Djokovic be granted a waiver or is he a super spreader? Oh, that's right. I mean, it ends May 11th. Just end it early. What, mm. what, 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 May 11th is a precise date that yes. was that was arrived at after serious thought, reflection, contemplation, testing, studying, convening, commissions, working groups. Precise. That's a scientific date. That's when we're having a party. We're going to have a parade. Because remember, Illinois' state of emergency ends May 11th as well. Would Dr. Roger Klein go see Novak Djokovic play in the Miami Open? We'll ask him now. Dr. Roger Klein is an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, and former advisor to all the alphabet soup agencies, FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Also, Dr. Roger Klein, like our other, so many of the other uh, professionals, experts that we've had on, like Martin Kaldorf and Jay Bhattacharya, and many, many others, uh, just just been outstanding for us and for you, our listeners, over the last three years in calling balls and strikes and sticking to the science and saying, here's what I think based on what we know. Here's the questions I have. 
So it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Klein back. Dr. Roger Klein, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Dan. Hi, Andy. So um, would you go see Novak Djokovic play in the Miami Open if you were a tennis fan? And maybe you are. I would. I would. Yeah, no, I don't. You know, I, we, I think we know now that, um, that, that the vaccines don't prevent spread. And the, the truth is now COVID's really turning into a uh, much more benign uh, disease. People still get, get sick, but the, the hospitalizations and deaths are, are way down. Um, you know, as people develop immunity uh, to the virus, it's sort of, we're, we're learning to live with it. I think as, as many of us have said, we would need to do. Well, why did they pick May 11th? What's so magical about that day? <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm, I'm not quite Spring sure flowers? I mean, what? Sure. Yeah, spring <laughs> forward into the summer yeah. without your vax card and mask and so forth. Um, what, do you make, what do you make of these debates that are still going on? Um, and um, I, I saw this, uh, this piece in The Atlantic that was attempting to sort of um, – that from their perspective, balance out some of the recent studies like the Cochrane uh, analysis of all the mass studies saying, well, they left there's some other uh, medical public health professionals arguing, well, they left out this study or or I don't agree with this analysis. I mean, what's your sense of where what we know to be true as against the backdrop of uh, all of these other colleagues of yours calling for a covid truth commission? Yes. So in terms of the masks, uh, with, with respect to Co- so Cochrane, you know, that's a very good evidence-based medicine group. And much of what I had been saying was really based on um, on what we knew from, from standards of evidence-based medicine. I used to co-chair a group at CDC, a well-known group called the Evaluation of uh, Genomic Applications in Practice and Prevention, which was an evidence-based work group. And I think, you know, I, 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 I continue to... to believe in the same way that we don't have solid evidence that masks uh, worn by the general public prevent the spread of COVID or any other respiratory viruses. And in fact, on the CDC's website for years, it's been uh, that that basic principle has uh, has been posted and is still there. Uh, as you watched uh, the last three years unfold and now what we're learning from Emails after the fact, you know, the truth shows up fashionably late to these things. Uh, emails uh, between Fauci and Collins and what they what they were told by expert virologists in January of 2020 and what they pretended they didn't know in April of 2020. Also across the pond in the UK, uh, about 100,000 text messages uh, between government officials have been released. And from the start, Britain's COVID policies became a question of politics. The the health secretary there under Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, who was a pro-lockdowner, uh, he uh, mused in a communication that an outbreak could be good for his political career. He shared with the media advisor a message purportedly from a wise friend telling Hancock that a well-handled crisis on this scale could propel you into the next league. There's also uh, communiques that our advisors to Boris Johnson saying, with respect to policy choices, don't get too far ahead of public opinion. I mean, this is not inconsistent with Tony Fauci's famous pronouncement to the New York Times that, you know, in terms of what constitutes herd immunity and other matters, he doles out information according to what he thinks the public can handle at what time. 
um, all of the politicization of this and the handling of people as opposed to the provision of information, questions that we have good answers to and questions that we don't and are searching for answers to? So, so I, I don't think it's a surprise that um, that a major uh, incident, uh, a pandemic, uh, becomes politicized. And I don't think it's surprising that politicians are thinking about uh, ways to politicize it or the political impact. It may be unwise to put things in, in text and emails uh, that later surface. Um, I, you know, I, I think initially in the in the um, in the pandemic, you know, I know there was a lot of uh, discussion about about discuss, about emails and and conversations that took place in February. I do believe that, uh, for example, Francis Collins and, and Dr. Fauci, I think that they uh, felt they were doing the right thing uh, in what they were saying. I think most, um, you know, I think the leading hypothesis wasn't probably still is, despite what's going on in, in public, that there was a zoonotic transfer of this virus from animals, it's certainly possible that it leaks from a lab. I've always said that. Um, we don't have direct evidence that that happened in the public domain. Apparently, the Department of Energy has some classified documents that uh, nobody has seen. But I think when you have a situation where we don't know, and that's really the answer, we don't know where it came from, there's all sorts of room for uh, for for inserting facts that uh, that really aren't supported by direct evidence, but rather our circumstantial, people's behavior, China's behavior, et cetera. But, but with, and the, the other thing I'd say is that without the cooperation and the help of China in trying to figure this, this out, uh, we certainly would never, could never find out for sure that it came from a lab. And well, it, it makes it even harder to figure out where it, uh, where it came from. Well, do you agree you, with, do you agree uh, with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, uh, who said on Face the Nation uh, over the weekend that we, we should you know, start from the premise that it came from the lab at this point, even though we may never know officially, because there are all sorts of reform conversations that uh, should be happening, and we need to get past uh, whether or not it, 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 it did leak from the lab. Let's presume it did, and let's talk about how we do things like fund uh, dangerous research and, who, which, and, and outsource dangerous research to labs that sometimes are the worst labs and so on and so forth. Yeah, so, so that was one of the things that came up earlier. I, you know, I, the premise of starting from there, yeah, it depends on the purpose. But uh, we know that they had a shoddy track record uh, in China of um, in that lab of safety. And, and should we have been giving money that was going to a lab for virology research in, when, when we knew they weren't adhering uh, to, to standards that I think we would adhere to in the United States? And I think a lot of most people would probably say no. I you know that that's that's one of the issues you know we we're talking about exploring and finding the origins and let's say it did uh, occur through a breach of safety standards the problem is we don't have control over what goes on in China or some other countries and 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 of course they again they're not going to let us know what was what was happening there yeah but what about Dr Fauci's role in having a study you know commissioned to cover up the lab leak and yeah, and yeah, and, so pre- and, and pretending he didn't, yeah, and pretending he didn't prompt Christian Anderson to to put that study together. I, I don't think it, it was a letter. I believe actually it wasn't. A, it was a correspondence to Nature Medicine. But but I I you know I think it, it, it it's speculative, and I think that I think the people uh, who who wrote it believed what they said. I think Dr. Fauci 
and Dr. Cohn believed and and continue to believe probably that this did or the origins were not a lab leak. It doesn't mean that that that's true. I think that and I would say, you know, and, and we've discussed, I think Dr. Fauci uh, evolved into a, a highly political figure in, in, in the debate. But I, but I do think they probably felt they were doing the right thing and 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 do believe that um, the yeah, but, origins were most likely uh, zoonotic. Yeah, but 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 believing you're doing the right thing, the, the ends don't justify the means. What he did, based on what we know at this point, is to say uh, we need to do a study that uh, we want a certain conclusion reached effectively, and that's what that study from Christian Anderson that was published in Nature Medicine did. And he pretended two months later that he didn't have any communications about this, that he didn't know about it. He said, oh, well, there's a study. He said this to the press corps in April of 2020. There's this study. I can't remember who the authors are, but we'll get that to you. I mean, that that is a misrepresentation. That is an unethical misrepresentation of what was going on. That, well, that does sound that way. And, I, you know, if those are the true facts, that, you know, I agree uh, that it's a misrepresentation. I, it's not like a study. I mean, it's, I, I, it's, it's sort of a, it's speculative. I mean, they're, they're looking at circumstantial evidence uh, based well, upon, for example, viral sequences and that sort of thing to come to a conclusion. Uh, and we're looking at emails and texts that had, we, for which we don't necessarily have the full context. I'm not. I'm not trying to defend it. I. I mean, I said all along. I thought it could come from a lab. It was probably not the most likely explanation, and that we don't know, and we never will know. And and I still think we're there. Well, right, but I mean, again, it's a sort of. I'm sorry, study or or letter. You know, this is indistinguishable to to the press corps because all they were looking for was somebody to put their credibility on the line who has credentials to say this, and then Fauci and Collins had what they wanted, uh, and then Fauci and Collins pretended they didn't know who these guys were. I mean, that, it's just that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty straightforward. Well, that, that part of it is, the, the latter part of it, I think, is problematic in the idea that there weren't conversations. The whole problem is, it, from the beginning, I don't think we've been truthful. And the, what we should have said was, look, we don't know where it came from, but it, it, it seems most likely to come from an animal. But it's definitely possible that it came from a lab. We just don't know. We don't have direct evidence. And we probably never will know. And that's what the, the truth is. And we get farther if China were helpful, but they're not wow. going to be. Of course. Right. And but, but did the Chinese government create the COVID-19? They created that strain of the well, virus or what? Well, so... So this is the context that that what you're referring to as a study, that paper is really directed toward whether or not this was a laboratory manipulated, created virus. Much less, It wasn't really directed toward an accidental leak of some stored virus. It, it the focus of it, I believe, was more about whether or not somebody made this virus or, you know, adapted this virus in the lab and and then kind of and then it got out. And I think that they were, you know, there was probably concern of a need to dispel the idea that, you know, China nefariously created this virus and let it let it out uh, on the world. And I, 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 you know, the context, again, the larger context uh, uh, suggests that, that these folks probably thought that that was the right thing to do. And I agree with you. I, I think the idea should always be to tell the truth, be candid. And and certainly in, in a you know with an an incident or a, 
you know, a situation of, of such high importance. I, you know, I think it's just best to be honest. Um, yeah, that's, you know, and, and about communications or anything else. So, um, you know, you, you've been an advisor to uh, some of the key agencies here in this discussion, public health agencies, FDA, CDC, CMS. Um, what is your what, what, what would you provide in terms of a direction for changes to how these agencies work in the wake of what we've seen for the last three years? Is there too much money concentrated in too few hands at NIH, at CDC with respect to grant funding that um, – people can use to manipulate other people into doing their bidding. Well, you know, that's something that's been suggested. Uh, the, the, the lab, uh, you know, where we outsource what research to and what, who we fund, that's been suggested. What, what, what's your perspective on that? Yeah. I, I mean, I, it, it's hard without having been in the middle and I wasn't, it, I wasn't the, present at, at these agencies to understand the nature of, uh, of the political, uh, influences in direction but i think the communication was central to the problem and and i've said that many times the messaging was just just you know really really subpar in my view i don't like to be so critical but i i feel it i'll say suboptimal let's put it that way i i think i think they um you know from the from the outset we should have informed the public what we know what we don't know and and less maybe less worried be less worried about um uh, frightening people and scaring them and and quite frankly i and i don't like to use the word but manipulating uh of people into into acting in a manner in which we 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 felt they should i i think we i think it's better to be open and upfront because when you have these voids in knowledge it it leaves too much opportunity to for, for people to fill in the facts and 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 the truth is is all much of what's coming out and much of what did come out was opinion he is Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS as well. Dr. Klein, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. We appreciate your time and your expertise. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. A big game on Friday in the... Uh... IHSA State Basketball Tournament. I'm so excited. You're Bennett. What is your mascot? The Red Wings. Bennett Academy in the one semifinal game will play. I can't believe it. Steve Moore's alma mater. (laughs) Steve Moore, (laughs) economist and Govzilla author, joins us now. Steve, uh, like Randolph and Mortimer uh, Mortimer Duke, our normal bet, $1 on the game, Bennett versus New (laughs) Trier. Uh, New Trier is in the semi, and the uh, is is this yeah, the nice, um, nice basketball fan? Oh you my are. gosh! So it's, yes. it's the rich kids versus the uh, middle class kids. <laughs> I would say I would I say uh, the street tough Red Wings versus North Shore Candy asses. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Dan. that's what I would say. <laughs> well, that's good. We haven't been, you know, we every year we lose to Evanston, so I it was I have not heard the news, and and so that's great. Our two rivals are Loyola and Evanston. Well, uh, that should be a lot of fun. I, there's a great tape, by the way, people should watch if you're a uh, high school basketball fan, which I am. 
uh, on the whole history of the IHSA and the tournament and the amazing, amazing great players from Quinn Buckner to Isaiah Thomas to Anthony Davis, the most amazing great, great basketball players of all time came from the state of Illinois. It's yeah. nice that something good is coming out of Illinois. Yeah, exactly. That's about it. We still have some By the way, athletes. can I make another point? Yes. I'm, I'm actually thinking about writing a column about this. That Pam and Amy, when we were growing up, Chicago basketball was the center of the universe for great, great players. Yes. And, um, and so and Michigan produced a lot of great basketball players and New York and New Jersey. Now, you know where all the great high school basketball players are coming out of? Texas and Florida. Well, uh, and I think that's a little bit of a, you know, um, indication of what's going on with our society, that the, the power of the U.S. economy, politically, culturally, and even in sports and economically, has moved to these southern states because people don't want to live. Uh, you know, in high-tax states like Illinois and New York anymore. No, you so. know what happened? Yes, no, when COVID happened and we couldn't play sports and we couldn't go to school, a lot of elite athletes moved out of they state. Left. And they oh, went to private you know schools what? in North Carolina, the Florida, yeah. and I know a good football yep. player that went down there. That was happening before COVID, but it certainly increased well, it, but it accelerated. But Amy's right, it accelerated during COVID. It's a great point, uh, Amy. You know, if you're if you're an elite you know, athlete that has a chance to go professional or something, yep. and then the schools shut down. Bye bye, Illinois. In Chicago. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pathetic. By the way, I had a piece, I don't know if you guys saw the piece I had in the Wall Street Journal the other day about these seven states, including Illinois, that now want to impose these wealth taxes on people. So not only do they want to tax you on your annual income and your property and your gas and all that other thing. Now, let's say you've, you've got a lifetime of savings. They want to tax that, too, every year. And so we found that those seven states, are you guys ready for that? You know, seven states. I, I get, by the way, I, get, I bet you guys can guess what those seven states are. Illinois, New York, yes. California. Yes. New yes. Mexico? No, New Jersey. New, New Jersey, Jersey, Connecticut. Hawaii? Connecticut and let's see what was the oh Maryland which Maryland. is the state I live in now anyway those seven states yeah. in Connecticut those seven states are you ready for this in, according to the latest census data that's through t- 2022 over the last 10 years have lost six million people that's Ooh. like the entire Chicago how big is the Chicagoland area probably yeah so about eight, seven million or, yeah, oh yeah maybe. the whole area yeah, yeah. so that's a, that's how many people are leaving these high tax you wouldn't you think that these progressives would start to get it that high crime high taxes lousy schools all this woke crap is let is making people leave just more for them with whoever is bound to stay yeah. just more for them protects yeah. them and yeah, yeah. Uh, more for them to distribute to themselves I suppose. Um, speaking yeah, I of guess the... it's a good, so it's a good thing, uh, you know, uh, um, that uh, that uh, Ken Griffin has left the state because you, you don't need those damn rich people anymore to pay no. like, you know, a huge no. burden on the bill. Yeah, exactly. You know, businesses come and go. That's our attitude. Businesses come and go. <laughs> and it's not a big mostly deal. Go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not a big deal. Um, what, it, what was a big deal yesterday is uh, Jay Powell's bellicose talk yeah. about interest rates and uh, yep. the, the Wall Street Journal editorial board is cheering him on. Is that the right play? You know, I'm not so sure about that. Um, look, I, I do. No, let me say this. Number one. It is true that the, the top goal right now of the Federal Reserve and just our, our overall economic policy is to get inflation down. We can't go forward with 6 or 7% inflation. It's just a killer 
for families. I mean, Amy, how many times have we talked about, you know, the price of groceries and the price of gas and all of these things that you have to buy? And most people think the inflation rate's a lot higher than six or seven percent for the essential. So that have you have to extinguish the inflation. The real question then, Dan and Amy, is how? What's the best way to do it? Well, let's go back to the source. Now, Dan and Amy, you know, because I've said it week after week after week, why why do we have this runaway inflation? Um, devaluing the currency, uh, <laughs> runaway, yeah, runaway government spending, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. The government money. created this crisis by spe- by literally, almost, almost literally, you know, taking hundred dollar bills in helicopters and and uh, you know, flying over cities like Chicago and drop, dropping the hundred dollar bills out the window. You know, that can be popular in the short term. Oh, look, free money. But what happens then? It drives up the prices and it ruins an economy. I mean, I call it the Argentina and Venezuela model of economic development. So the point I'm driving at is rather than driving up interest rates, you know, for mortgages and consumer credit and any business that's trying to get a loan, you know, those interest rates have already risen from about 2 percent when Trump was president to 5 percent or more now under under Biden. Why not just cut government spending by five hundred billion dollars? I mean, we could do that easily. That's a layup. Uh, well, basketball. And, well, and you do that. And I guarantee you that will bring inflation down. So I want to cut government spending. I don't want r- higher interest rates. Well, we could do something else, too. In fact, the big guy, Mr. 10 percent, proposed it the other day. We could tax people make more than four hundred thousand dollars because because there's no way a billionaire should be paying more in taxes than a firefighter. You mean less? <laughs> I mean, they're saying that. The, uh, less, the way, yeah, right. No, a billionaire should yeah. not be paying le- less in income taxes <laughs> right. than a firefighter. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah that's which, what he which, said. I, I want to find that billionaire that's paying less than a firefighter, because you look at the official IRS data. This comes uh, you know, from the IRS, and it was reported on this week in, at, in the Wall Street Journal that the top one percent. Uh, guess what, Amy? You'll, you'll be my focus group this morning. Guess what percentage of the overall income tax burden in the United States is paid by the top one percent? Uh, 50%? Hmm. We talked about this 42, the other day. 42, 42, 42. 42.3%. Well, yeah. So one, one out of 100. By the way, yeah. Amy, most most people would say, oh, 5 or 6%. You know, or, or even one less. A lot of people think that the top 1% pay less than 1% right. of the tax burden. No, they pay 42%. They're the ones who employ people. They're the ones who start businesses. They're, you know, I'm going to make a little confession to you guys. I like rich people. Don't tell anybody. Well, <laughs> rich people well, you are, are one. You, make our, yeah. you know, they create great businesses. So this idea that we're going to balance the budget by just soaking, soaking it to the rich, come on. You're, you're, and, and by the way, for the same reason that rich people are moving out of Illinois and New York and California, if we keep raising our taxes, what do you think they're going to do? Then they're going to move out of the United States. They'll move to the Cayman Islands or something. Well, if we're not going to raise taxes on fat cats like uh, like you, Steve, then the least we can do is uh, forgive student loan debt or more to the point socialize <laughs> it so everybody else pays it at least you fat cats can pay for other people's uh student debt um this is a case before the supreme court right now and by the way this is an emergency you know this is an emergency exactly. it's a COVID emergency that we uh, get rid of student loan debt uh, somebody's got to explain that one to me how this is loan debt I is mean, a COVID emergency. Yeah. Well, this that's is the well, power. The Did you know that, Sam? They are, that's the power the, that Biden the, asserted. He said, I well, have the unilateral power to spend this money because of COVID. Well, he, he's actually invoking uh, he's invoking the 2003 HEROES Act is what he's oh, doing. The HEROES Act. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's invoking an administrative act that has nothing to do with that. 
that basically, but it is the emergency powers. And it's it's right. really remarkable to hear these arguments being advanced by justices like Sotomayor and Kagan, because they're essentially taking the position the Supreme Court did in the Korematsu case, where the Supreme Court upheld FDR's decision to intern the Japanese under this nebulous idea of, of, of the executive's emergency powers, such that it is not the court's job to determine whether or not there is an emergency it's only uh, their job essentially to defer to the executive when he declares an emergency. I, I can't believe this court is going to uh, sustain that argument and the $600 billion that the Congress never contemplated uh, would be implicated by the 2003 HEROES Act because they never budgeted for any spend along these lines. So what happens if and when the Supreme Court strikes this down? Well, first of all, I mean, just think about, you know, here's a kind of counterintuitive example. But imagine that it was Donald Trump that was president and he wanted to spend all this money or do all these things without congressional authority. What would they all say? Oh, he's a dictator. Yeah, you know, right. he's a dictator. He's a, so I don't see that anybody, anybody on the left calling Biden a dictator for unilaterally doing this. Look, I, I think that these emergency powers, I don't care who the president is, are, are getting to be a really bad idea because – you're right. You know, you well, mentioned he needed the, it. internship. What? I'm sorry. He needed it for midterm votes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, look, my point is, if these things are so urgent, why can't Congress vote on it? I read the Constitution. I know most people think that's an old fashioned document. But the Constitution says in Article One that Congress has the authority to spend. The president has, does not have the <laughs> authority to spend. And he's asserting this. That's a dangerous thing. And I, I'm with you, Dan. I think it would be at least six three, maybe seven two, except for the fact that there's this big issue about whether the plaintiff in this case had standing to sue. And that's you know, that's a little outside of my area of expertise. But just on the issue of whether or not the president has this authority, hell no, because we're no a, way. we we have we have divided powers in the in this country. We are not a dictatorship. I don't care what Joe Biden says and I'm praying that the Supreme Court overturns this, not only because I think it's outrageous that we're forgiving people's, you know, loans to deadbeats who didn't pay their loans, but also because it's a really bad precedent for America that the president can just, without the will of the Congress, make these decisions. And teach financial responsibility. Real quick, uh, Dan, you weren't here on Ash Wednesday, but Stephen Moore, you said you gave up sex with your wife for Lent, and we were just wondering, yeah, it got ugly early. (laughs) We were just wondering how that's going. I I wasn't able to. (laughs) Please give us the details. Yeah, don't leave anything <laughs> out. Yeah. I said I, I said I decided to give up um, carrots and broccoli. Oh, okay, yeah. Sure you did. That's, okay. That was a lot easier. Yeah, good fallback <laughs> okay. position. By the way, thanks for bringing that up, Amy. Well, yeah. you brought it up, and no, people thank were you. wondering yeah. how your, you know, your goals days. are coming along. Uh, you lasted eight days. How long did your wife last? Uh, never Hi-oh. mind. I owe. Thank All you right, very much. Amy, Amy, what did you? <laughs> Amy, I what gave did up you swearing up for, Lent? for Lent, and that lasted. And how's that not, going? I, that didn't go well, Stephen Moore. I lasted yeah, about you, an hour and a half. You, have you used the F word any time in the last eight days? Yeah, I, you know, uh, I don't like that <laughs> word. I use mm. other words. <laughs> but thank you for bringing that up and acknowledging yeah. my faults. All right. I appreciate it. Steve, uh, you know, we'll let you get – I know you're a lover, not a, just an economist. Uh, we know that now. And you're also the author of Govzilla. Thanks for joining us, Steve. We you appreciate guys, that. have a great week. Good Bye. luck to your Trevians. Yes. <laughs> 
Eddie, join us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the reactions from the political ruling class and their press corps came fast and furious after Monday night's Tucker Carlson show in which he unveiled uh, some important videos in response to videos that were presented by the January 6th Star Chamber uh, with respect to the QAnon shaman being escorted around the Capitol, with respect to Officer Brian Sicknick walking around the Capitol in good health, with respect to... Josh Hawley, Missouri senator, quote unquote, fleeing the Capitol when, in point of fact, he was being evacuated along with many other elected officials. And he was actually at the back of the pack. The additional context that was provided on those issues. And that led to Pagliacci Schumer calling for Tucker Carlson to be taken off the air, including from the Senate, the, the well of the Senate, which is sort of a remarkable occurrence a Senate majority leader calling for the removal of a news commentator. But that's what Chucky Schumer did. Fox News should tell him not to. Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, tell Carlson not to run a second segment of lies. I urge Fox News to order Carlson to cease propagating the big lie on his network and to level with their viewers about the truth, the truth, behind the efforts to mislead the public. Conduct like theirs is just asking for another January 6th of course. to happen. Oh, my God. I mean, such hyperbole uh, and holiness. And then Jean, Karine Jean-Pierre said that Tucker Carlson's January 6th tapes, the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War, Dan. The tapes or the actual January 6th riots? Which, which one? Tapes. I think it, she said the tapes. No, I think she's talking about the, the, the rioting. But a, oh. anyway, yeah, of course, they're st- repeating their lines and, uh, and uh, representing their posture on the issue. Mitch McConnell also got into the act, as did other uh, Republicans who take their marching orders from the D.C. press corps, the Mitt Romneys and the Tom Tillises of the world. Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, had this to say. With regard to the uh, presentation on Fox News last night, I want to associate myself entirely with the opinion of the chief of the Capitol Police about what happened on January 6th. Clearly, the chief of the Capitol Police, in my view, correctly describes what most of us witnessed firsthand on January 6th. So that's my reaction to it. Um, It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at Capitol thinks. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's a funny thing about eyewitness testimony, Senator McConnell. Uh, did you ever see the Rashomon, uh, Rashomon and uh, what gave rise to the Rashomon effect, the Kurosawa film? You know, different people at different places from different angles see very different things, even people of good faith. And I think a, a lot of the players in this saga, uh, it would be a stretch to characterize them as people of good faith. We are talking about politicians, after all. Uh, I like this response from... Mike Davis, who's a former law clerk for Chief uh, for uh, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. He also worked on court nominations, Supreme Court nominations, I think, specifically for the Senate Judiciary Committee. So he knows the environment. He's been part of the environment. He's a uh, he's got to be a, a strong legal mind to any uh, clerk for any Supreme Court justice, generally speaking, is. He tweeted, Dear Senate Republicans, some friendly advice. Stop lighting yourselves on fire, attacking Tucker Carlson. Yes, the January 6th protest clearly got out of control. No, it was not an insurrection. It was a riot. Americans' eyes aren't lying to them when they watch the surveillance videos. The Democrats have politicized and weaponized January 6th to hunt down and destroy their political enemies. They went too far. Stop being hysterical. Can you hear me now, Mitch McConnell, to borrow from Trump over the weekend? Can you hear me now, Mitt Romney, Tom Tillis? He goes on, does Mike Davis, and these same Senate Republicans were awfully quiet while BLM and Antifa rioters killed dozens, caused billions in damage, and destroyed American cities for months in 2020, including the Portland Federal Courthouse on a nightly basis. And uh, when abortion industry activists terrorized Catholic churches, crisis pregnancy centers, and Supreme Court justices in their homes, I'm glad they finally found the courage to speak out against political violence, only when it affects them, of course. And that's why Tucker Carlson offered the commentary he did on his show yesterday in response to all of this, with particular emphasis on Schumer and McConnell. The bipartisan nature of the response, well, the bipartisan nature of the ruling class. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why is it so important that they would degrade themselves by telling such obvious lies and calling for censorship? Why? What are they trying to protect? That might be worth exploring, and we plan to. And the second thing that we learned from this is that they're on the same side. The Senate Majority Leader joins the Senate Minority Leader. Tom Tillis, Mitt Romney. (laughs) They're all on the same side. So it's actually not about left and right. It's not about Republican and Democrat. Here you have people with shared interests. The open borders people. The people, (laughs) the people like Mitch McConnell who are living in splendor on Chinese money. For more on all this, please be joined by Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, author of January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War of Terror, uh, yeah, Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right, that is, sorry, misspoke there. Julie, thanks for joining us, appreciate it. Good morning, don't worry, I get it wrong all the time. Or on terror, not up terror. Um, Okay, so January 6th, the name of the book. Let's just to repeat there, another plug. And uh, you were on Tucker yesterday talking about something specific with respect to those uh, that are under uh, indictment uh, by the federal government for their alleged behavior on January 6th. But before we get there, what about this uh, bipartisanship and Mitch McConnell hiding behind the Capitol Police Chief's report and Tucker and, uh, of course, uh, Chuck Schumer, you know, coming over the top as he's wont to do, calling for Tucker Carlson's removal from the airwaves. I mean, it, it, it was just 
fascinating to watch Chuck Schumer from the Senate floor. And he said, I order you, I order you to take Tucker Carlson off the air. And it didn't stop there. Then he gave another press conference to the compliant media who, instead of confronting the Senate majority leader about calls to remove a influential news figure, uh, you know, their lapdogs were sitting there agreeing with him as he continued his rampage against Tucker Carlson. Um, and then Mitch McConnell holds up a letter from the Capitol Police Chief. You mean the same police force that intentionally left the Capitol unsecured on January 6th? Uh, that Capitol Police Force? I mean, this is farcical, what is happening. Um, but they are panicking because the January 6th narrative is falling apart. And it's falling apart under the weight of evidence we can see with our own eyes. This isn't just spin from MSNBC or CNN about Russiagate or, you know, COVID or any, any of, of the other things that they've concocted. We can see it with our own eyes. And so that's what they're so alarmed about. And, um, you know, with respect to those specific uh, clips that Tucker Carlson played, um, what does and, and the, the response that, that this was, you know, their strategy of de-escalation um you know what does that what should that tell us about what happened that day and what else we need to know to have a full understanding of what happened that day with respect to the role of both protesters and people who broke the law as well as law enforcement I mean, because I think there were a lot of moving parts to January 6th. The idea that this entire mob left uh, Donald Trump's speech armed and ready for battle to overthrow the government inside the building that day is a complete lie. You had different things happening at different points, and you could see that with the video that Tucker released. You could see it with other video that's been released uh, by the government, forced to be released. Uh, that is all under protective orders, and more importantly, body-worn camera footage. Alarming police misconduct and brutality in some instances by D.C. Metro Police and Capitol Police, who attacked protesters and in many instances provoked the confrontations that we saw. They used flashbangs. They used rubber bullets. They doused people with mace. This was outside on the Capitol grounds. These are people who are not doing anything wrong. That is more of the video that's coming out. So it's not just collapsing under the surveillance video, but also other video that we see uh, from what police did inside and outside that building that day. So is that going to come out on Tucker Carlson, too? I am not sure if it will come out under this trove, even though there is surveillance video that showed what police did, say, inside the rotunda to people. Um, But that is coming out in trials. Uh, the body-worn camera footage that also has been kept under seal for now two years has to be presented in court, in trial, as evidence. And so we are getting those reels, and it is shocking and alarming. And when the American people finally start to see that as well, they are really going to be outraged at how the media, the Democrats, and yes, a lot of Republicans like Mitch McConnell have completely twisted the events of January 6th that this FBI has called an act of domestic terror and are treating American citizens who have been charged even with misdemeanors like they are domestic terrorists. Well, there's also seemingly some disagreement or disclosures that are that run counter to the official narrative from Capitol Police officers themselves, including 
Tariq Johnson, who Tucker Carlson interviewed, who talked about how he couldn't get response from superiors when he wanted to evacuate senators from uh, from the chamber to ensure their safety. And so he took it on his on to, he took it on himself to do so. But it just speaks to the larger question of both unpreparedness uh, leading up to the day and then unresponsiveness during the day lead to the to the job that Capitol Police did. In any other context, we would be asking these questions about the law enforcement response. And I'm sure there were some some uh, good aspects to it that were professional and responsible. And then there were some aspects that leave a, a lot of doubt. And um, but it doesn't seem like that has gotten much airing either. What exactly the Capitol Police did, uh, those that were escorting people around in the Capitol when they could have been removing them. And they're calling that de-escalation, as well as why there's not a chain of command. And one other thing, the communications between the sergeants at arms in the respective chambers to legislative leaders. What did they tell them in advance? What did they tell them the day of? And what kind of decisions did people like McConnell and Pelosi make? That's exactly right, Dan. So the responsibility to secure the Capitol was not Donald Trump's responsibility. It was Capitol Police and a body called the Capitol Police Board. That is made up of the sergeant at arms of the House, who worked for Nancy Pelosi at the time, and the sergeant at arms for the Senate, who worked for Mitch McConnell. Stephen Sund, who is the ex-Capitol Police chief, has testified numerous times that he started asking the Capitol Police Board for additional security starting on January 4th. He did it on January 5th. He did it throughout the day on January 6th. Those appeals fell on deaf ears. Now, why is that? We also are told now the Capitol Police had intelligence that there could be violence that day. The FBI was collecting intelligence that suggested there could be violence that day. The Department of Homeland Security now is admitting that they had intelligence. So why did these people... Washington, D.C. has more has more law enforcement uh, police forces than any other city in the country. Why was law enforcement presence so sparse that day? The ultimate responsibility falls on Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. They were not questioned by the January 6th committee. They weren't asked what why this was left. And Dan and Amy and the 837 page report that they issued in December, they buried any criticism of law enforcement and intelligence agencies like the FBI in an appendix. So they didn't even interview Christopher Ray. So this is an intentional cover-up of why security was not better that day, why so many decisions were made to leave the Capitol building vulnerable, to leave Capitol Police officers vulnerable. I was at a trial a couple of weeks ago, and a Capitol Police officer, a female, almost broke down in tears because she said that her leadership basically hung them out to dry. Um, There were four or five Capitol Police officers on the west side of the building that directly faces the ellipse where all these people were going to be coming from. So those are the questions that are unanswered. The committee, the media, and the Biden regime and DOJ want those questions unanswered. They only want the narrative that Donald Trump was the one who launched this so-called insurrection. When the American people are waking up and they want to know more about exactly what happened. And we saw that in the Rasmussen poll. 
Oh yeah, Jane, you can go. It's it seems it just seems to me like there's a lot to unpack here because on the on the protester side, you have some people that that may have had bad intentions, and you have some people that made bad judgment calls, and then you have some people that did nothing wrong. On the, the law enforcement side, you've got some people that were there to do their jobs and to, to the best of their ability, and you've got. Some maybe some on the federal law enforcement side. I mean, FBI side with informants to the extent that Christopher Ray ever discloses what exactly FBI was or was not doing there in that right. day. Maybe you have some bad actors too. Um, maybe there's some incompetence with respect to chain of command and communication. Um, bad judgment calls, maybe by some police. Great judgment calls by other police. It's just a lot to unpack because you're talking about a lot of people in big organizations. And there's all sorts of motivations. And now you layer in everybody's political interests, uh, you know, uh, inside the beltway. And it just it just becomes hard to make heads or tails of uh, with respect to getting to some sort of neat summary of what occurred and who are the responsible parties and what should be the accountability. That's right, Dan. I think you said that very well, that there are a lot of uh, aspects to this. But the media and the committee and DOJ has only presented one. And it would be fine if this was just sort of forgotten, but it's not. You have a thousand Americans who face criminal charges for January 6th. You have DOJ threatening that that figure will double, that that will be 2,000 um, Americans charged for mostly misdemeanors, by the way. It is completely uh, occupying. Uh, the resources of DOJ and the FBI as they continue to investigate and arrest people across the country for what happened now 26 months ago. So it's relevant to the public record and it's relevant to the resources that are being used um, to to continue this narrative that this was an armed insurrection, that, that Trump supporters tried to overthrow the government and that this was a domestic terror attack. Fine. You want to play that game? We'll play it. Let's get all the evidence out there and let Americans decide what they want to believe. And we appreciate that you go to most of these trials, if not all of these trials. But how many people have been denied bond and are sitting in jail waiting for their trials to begin? So over the period of the past two years, more than 100 men have been held um, under pretrial detention orders. That means that a judge in Washington, D.C. has denied them bail. These are men, for the most part, with no criminal record. Some of them are charged with nonviolent offenses like conspiracy and obstruction. And believe it or not, there are men who have been in jail for 24, 25, 26 months, denied bail repeatedly by D.C. judges awaiting trial as those same trials are delayed because the government keeps playing games with evidence, keeps adding defendants and screwing around. So these people suffer in language, languish until they torture a plea deal out of them. And uh, with respect to to those awaiting, uh, the, the, the FBI declared um, a while back that they had no evidence there was any seditious conspiracy afoot. So those who are charged with conspiracy, they're charged with conspiracy to obstruct, uh, conspiracy to obstruct justice. Yes, but there are also about 20 men who have been charged with seditious conspiracy. And those charges are a joke. And believe it or not, but but that, that, that those charges those charges come after the FBI declared they they had no evidence of seditious conspiracy. Then they did, right? Because uh, Merrick Garland was under pressure after a year because no one had been charged with insurrection. So right. all of a sudden, they charged several men with the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys with seditious conspiracy. And I'm telling you, the cases 
rely on text messages. They rely on communications between some of these defendants, who, some who didn't even know each other before January 6th. That is the bulk of their case. But nonetheless, these are men who have been in jail for two years. Their trials are going on in a city. Now DOJ has a 99% conviction rate for January 6th defendants. No judge has approved a change of venue motion. These juries, these trials should not be happening in Washington, D.C. It's such a rigged judicial and legal system, um, but it relies on a, a lot of falsehood. And again, that's why you see DO, and DOJ is now starting to file um, motions saying that they don't want this video released, that it's not relevant to these criminal cases, um, and, and that you know, everyone should just sort of move on. Well, this what, is a massive cover-up operation. What about Jacob, the uh, the QAnon shaman who's in prison? I mean, that video clearly shows that they let him in to the Senate chambers, and they were, you know, he was being, it just seemed like they were escorting him throughout the Capitol. I mean, That's could his right. sentence get reduced or anything happen with, with that new footage? He's already been in jail since January of 2021. He also was under pretrial detention uh, uh, orders. He was in solitary confinement for over 300 days before the DOJ successfully tormented a plea deal out of him. He pleaded guilty to obstruction of an official proceeding when you could see there was no official proceeding going on. And Judge Royce Lambert, a Reagan appointee, believe it or not, sentenced him to one month in prison. So he's still in jail. Solitary. She is Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, author of January 6th, How Democrats used the Capitol protest to launch a war on terror against the political right. Julie Kelly, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. So the NBA is dominated by black men, and yet that doesn't mean that Kendrick Perkins, former Boston Celtic, one of the rare players actually who went right from high school to the NBA and had a long career, Kendrick Perkins doesn't mean Kendrick Perkins can't cry racism when it comes to the league's MVP. He said, when it comes down to guys winning MVP since 1990, it's only three guys that won the MVP that wasn't top 10 in scoring. You know who those three guys were? Steve Nash, Nikola Jokic, and Dirk Nowitzki. Now, what do those guys have in common? I'll let it sit there and marinate. You think about it. And if you don't follow the NBA, what those three guys have in common is they're white. So that was the setup for a discussion on <laughs> Stephen A. Smith's unwatchable show on the unwatchable ESPN about an unwatchable sport. I mean, that's I, I, I can't even can barely bring myself to, to, to have an interest in this other than the political cultural implications, which are important. Thus, our segment is titled Sports and Politics. And so, J.J. Uh, Redick, you know, former Duke standout, long career in the NBA, too. Uh, he was the other panelist with Kendrick Perkins on first take with the uh, carnival barker that is Stephen A. Smith. And here's how J.J. Redick started his response to Kendrick Perkins. 
Perk, I, I want I to touch on something that they didn't bring up. This idea that Dirk and Steve Nash were uh, favored to win the MVP because they're white. Um, first of all, you stop short at 1990. That was your cutoff point for players to win MVP not in the top 10 in points per game, which is a stupid stat to judge MVP on. This isn't middle school. 1990, Magic won it. 89, Magic won it. 87, Magic won it. 87, he was 10th. Mm -hmm. 89, he was 15th. 90, he was 18th. Okay. Okay? We we judge MVP year to year. You also said the criteria or the goalposts change year to year for certain players. No, it doesn't. We vote on the MVP. Hold on. Hold on. We vote on the MVP based on that season. We vote on the MVP based on that season. It is a regular season award. Previous playoff runs have nothing to do with it. It's a regular season award for the most valuable player. And we can measure that, Perk. So maybe voters have gotten smarter. I want to talk about Dirk and Nash real quick, and I'll let you jump in. Dirk Nowitzki. Led the league in win shares in both 06 and 07. Led the league in offensive win shares in both 06 and 07. So, yeah, he wasn't top five or whatever he was, top ten in scoring his MVP season. The Dallas Mavericks were 67 and 15. They had the best record in the NBA. In 05, Steve Nash was the driver of the number one offense in the league, a team that jumped 20 wins and had the best record in the NBA. Okay. In 06, 06 to me is one of the weirdest MVP seasons ever. You can make an argument Nash probably shouldn't have won it, but he was still the driver of the number one offense in the league. The two best teams that year, the Detroit Pistons, 64 wins. The San Antonio Spurs, 63 wins. Guess what? They didn't have a top – their their top scorers weren't in the top 20 in the NBA that year. So that was just a strange thing. You could have given it to Kobe. You could have given it to Shaq. You could have given it to Tim Duncan. They gave it to Steve Nash. It was, it's not because he was white. It was just – it was – so it's interesting because, of course, Kendrick Birkin sets the standards of analysis here, like didn't lead the league in scoring, wasn't the top 10 league in scoring. And then, you know, he st- from 1990 forward. So apparently the NBA was less racist in the pre-1990 than it was post-1990. That doesn't sound right. Uh, but J.J. Reddick goes down just in terms of making an argument based on, you know, the sort of totality of stats and how you look at who had the best season and, and the biggest impact on their team and so on and so forth, in addition to what Kendrick Perkins had to say about, you know, being in the top ten and scoring. And this is what you get in response to J.J. Reddick's response. What I'm saying is I don't know the criteria no more. I don't know if it's because it's the number one seed. I don't know if it's the number six seed. I don't know how you judging it. Is it we judging off of advanced stats or who's the most valuable player? You take them off this team. We don't know. We don't know. But we do know this. Since you do want to bring it up, we do know this. That when it comes to MVP voting, when it comes to MVP voting, 80% of the, MV, of the voters are, are white American. 20% are others. I know that stat. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six da turnkey dot pro text line. Uh, does anybody listen to sports radio? Because I don't know how you can listen to this or watch uh, the I, ESPN it's program. Unwatchable. I don't know how anybody. I don't can... know how anybody can watch the NBA. Have you been to an NBA game lately? No. It's so boring. 
I, I, I don't even want to go back. High school basketball, so much more exciting. I, like, how, I can't wait to watch Bennett play New Trier on How Friday. can people listen to four hours of guys arguing about who should be the MVP? I mean, I honestly don't know. What a waste of time. And I, that comes to somebody who's a pretty big sports fan yeah. throughout my entire life. I still track it pretty closely. Well, you had a picture, but, a poster of Michael Jordan on your wall when you were a kid. But listen, listening to these guys. And then, but, but the, it's interesting because this is the sort of conversation about race you hear amplified by the media in all sorts of sectors you could you could be hearing uh, this is about uh, mvp you could be hearing the same conversation with the same sort of substantive non-substantive dichotomy uh in an academic setting a corporate setting so here's the case you just said you have to be in top 10 scoring well magic wasn't he won it three times um oh it's and, and well i know this i know this 80 percent of the mvp voters are white and 20 percent or other Okay, well, were those 80% and 20% the same people who voted to give LeBron James the the MVP how many times and, and I mean it's just it's it's just the most inane conversation and frankly JJ Reddick did a nice job of not just exposing the folly of what Kendrick Perkins was saying, but also he makes the larger point about media, which is an important point about all media, which includes sports media because what do I always say? All these sports media journalists, in quotation marks, they so want to be taken seriously that they fold in with the leftist D.C. press corps and their regional outlets because they so want to be taken seriously. I'm a serious journalist. I'm a right. thoughtful person. I'm I'm a righteous person and so on and so forth. When, in fact, most of them are doofuses. Oh, they act Jay, like I'm a Democrat. I care about minorities because Republicans don't, which is a, a line of bull. A good example of doofusry. Yeah. And what they do, similar to what the D.C. press corps does. Listen to Reddick. Uh, Stephen, I, I mean no offense to you, and I mean no offense to First Take, because I think this show is extremely valuable. It is an honor to be on this desk every day. It really is. But what we've just witnessed is the problem with this show. Where we create narratives that do not exist in reality. The implication, what you are implying, that the white voters that vote on NBA are racist, that are, they, they favor white people. You I just not, said that. I you ju- not, yes, you did. I yes, did you did. Not, I did. Yes, you did. That I is did exactly not, what you implied, Kendrick Perkins. That is exactly what you implied. Secondly, hold on, hold on. I did not call. I stated the facts. I stated the facts. And you're not about to sit up. We all know what you implied the other day. We all know what you implied just now. Hold on. I stated it. It's the facts. It's the facts. It's the facts. Okay. Secondly. Secondly. Yeah, it's the facts. It's the facts. It's the facts. Right, Kendrick. It's the facts. 80%. I don't know if it's facts, but let's say it is. 80% of NBA MVP voters are white and 20% are other. And so your point is what, Kendrick? It's just the facts. It's the facts. Right. You're not making any insinuation. That's not a statement that's intended to lead anybody to any conclusion. Right, Kendrick? After you were just complaining about uh, three white players since 1990 that didn't, weren't in the top ten in scoring that won the MVP, suggesting that that, w- that was illegitimate. But you're not trying to lead anybody anywhere. You're just stating facts. You're just a fact stater. Right. Okay. Charles Barkley weighed in on this. And... Um, he said what Kendrick uh, Perkins said is asinine and silly. 
He said, one of the things that's silly about ESPN at times, they do this silly debate every year about MVP, going back to even when I played. They did it a lot with LeBron, which makes me laugh, too. Derrick Rose won it. He deserved it. Kevin Durant won it. He deserved it. It's a regular season award. It ain't who the best player is. It's who had the best regular season. But every year, ESPN gets these fools on radio and TV to talk about who's the best player. They have these silly things every year, and it's really just that the silliness that's the silliness of these morning talk shows. And his point is to say, oh, you go on these shows and you got to say something provocative to make it interesting or relevant to get anybody talking about it. So I guess Kendrick Perkins accomplished that. Uh, Matt Oaklawn, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, I, the league, you said, Dan, it's unwatchable. It's just a stupid waste of time. Uh, and I, I love basketball. High school basketball, college basketball. In fact, I like grammar school basketball. But, uh, I was having this conversation with a buddy of mine who's a pretty loyal listener, and he just looked at me and he's like, "I'd rather my dad catch me watching gay porn than an NBA basketball game." Okay, <laughs> all right, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Philip Blue Island. <laughs> Do I have to follow that? Yeah. Uh, I think the whole yeah. argument is really Embiid in Philadelphia, and um, no Joel case. Embiid. Yeah, think- he should be the MVP. I get it, but but you think you no, think? No, that's if- not what I was saying. That's- well, that, that, well, that's the argument. So- well, that's the argument. They're saying, you know, Embiid and and JJ Redick addresses said, yeah, sure, you can make a case for Embiid, and you can make make a case for Jokic as well. And if Jokic gets it, it's not because he's white. That's that's the, what's the, the back and what, forth. The, correct. What the comparison is is um uh when when what's his name? He was in L.A. and now he's in um doggone it because he was he was always getting triple doubles. Triple-double, triple-double, man. I can't think of his name right now. Pretty crazy. But um, that's what they're comparing it to because when Westbrook – I'm sorry. When Westbrook oh, had all these triple-doubles, and, and um, I, I'm not sure how many MVPs he got, but they're just saying that between MB and and that's why it becomes a black-white issue because, of course – but it's right. not a but this but 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 do you think it's a black white issue? Who 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 made more sense to you, Kendrick Perkins or JJ Redick? Kendrick Perkins never makes sense to me. I just, okay. just right. don't Very like good. his commentary. Right. And JJ right. Riddick sometimes I can't go with him either. But in this case, he's, he's probably half right. All right, half right. That's a grand concession. All right, thanks, Philip. Uh, Larry Elmhurst. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, I wonder if he thinks it's racist that uh, basketball was invented by a, a white guy. And uh, I'd rather watch I Am Jazz than uh, watching these. Uh, and, and you know what? All you got, all you got to do is watch the first five minutes of Basketball Wives, and there's like ten fights. So that shows you what, what goes on there. Thanks for the color. I mean, the like, right, so the NBA, I mean, obviously we lived through the golden era of the NBA right. with Michael Jordan and the six championships. The you're repeat never gonna, of the three. You're, you're never going to get better. And and but the, but the NBA in nineteen in the nineteen nineties with the rivalries between the Bulls and the Pistons and the Bulls and the Knicks. I mean, there's just nothing like that now no. because they don't play basketball. Oh, they it is travel, a glorif- they don't play defense. It's, it's a glorified so shoot around. Yeah. You ha- you have games, you have NBA games this season I've seen like in the one sixties to one fifties. What, what what is that? That's called no defense. <laughs> uh, so yeah. All right. Mm. Uh one other a note in sports and politics since we're on the segment. Uh, did you see this? USA Powerlifting must let transgender athletes compete in the women's division. Yeah, I heard. 
uh, a dude who wanted to wants to be in the women's division in powerlifting won a case at the federal court level, and now the organization is compelled, pending appeal, to revise its policy related to allowing men to powerlift with women within the span of two weeks. Yeah. Now, again, this is uh, a complaint that was filed with the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, so you get these politicized state-level departments, but then and then went to state court, and um, and that's where the uh, decision was rendered. So, pending further litigation on the topic, but yeah, we'll look forward to uh, some dudes dominating women's powerlifting the way that. Uh, the clownfish dominated uh, collegiate swimming during his final year. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.